This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Tiesta Tea. Tiesta Tea was started to revolutionize the way people consume tea. Finding the right tea should be simple. What will it do for me, and what will it taste like? By focusing on function and flavor, Tiesta Tea makes tea approachable and easy to understand. Tiesta Tea created five functional categories based on the health benefits that each blend naturally gives you. And with a variety of flavors within each function, there are blends to fit every taste and lifestyle. Use code TMIGOS20 for 20% off your first order on TiestaT.com. That's TMIGOS20. Welcome to the TMIGOS podcast, the show where we talk life while enjoying tea. Today, I talked with Eitan Trojanski. Eitan is a jiu-jitsu practitioner, crossfitter, and woodworker. We discussed a lot about tea, woodworking, jiu-jitsu, self-defense, and bobsledding? Check out Eitan's work at E.T. Woodworks, that's E-T-W-O-O-D-W-R-X on Instagram, and enjoy the show. Eitan, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing today? Thank you. Uh, Doing well. How are you? doing doing really well can't complain you know thursday almost the weekend i'm actually going on a trip next week so it's uh i'm excited headed? colorado very nice heading up to colorado um it's my buddy's birthday he was born on saint patrick's day and typically we he has people and so we're from chicago as you know and he, we always go back to Chicago for pub crawl, kind of, it's it's St. Patrick's Day, it's his birthday, kind of like mix the two together, um, but due to COVID and the fact that like bars aren't really aren't open and stuff like that, we decided to do just kind of like a, a small trip where just a few of us go out, get out of uh, Minnesota and yeah, and he's going to go skiing, I'm not, I got a, a bum knee right now, so yeah, it's it's gonna be fun though, and, and literally just a change of scenery, something to do, um, just go for hikes, stuff like that. I'm excited. That's awesome. What happened with your knee? Did you injure it, or is it like a, a nagging thing? No, yeah, I uh, I did injure it. I injured it back in October. Well, I injured it in September. Um, tore my LCL doing Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, and yeah, <laughs> and um, got surgery on it then a few weeks later and so i've been recovering and i i'm honestly i'm back to most normal things at this point but it's one of like skiing snowboarding one of those things where one i'm not good at those things (laughs) and two that just sounds like a recipe for like i don't trust my knee quite yet it's only been six months since my surgery like I don't want to re-injure it doing something I'm don't even not even that passionate about and yeah something like that. Have you gone back to jujitsu at all? Like, are you doing drills or anything? No, no. So that is like because I injured it at jujitsu. This has been one just mentally. It's kind of been a thing where. I'm a, I'm a little nervous to get back to it. I know, like, I, I am going to get back to it, though. Like, people ask me, like, if I'm going to be doing it again. And I love I love it too much to to not get back to it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to. But 
it's one of those sports where you get caught in such weird positions, which is why I hurt myself. I was just caught in a in a very bizarre position. Actually, for jiu-jitsu, it's not bizarre. For normal life, it's bizarre. Right. And I, it's like, I want to make sure I'm fully healed, if not even give myself an extra month of healing before I can maybe get caught in like a weird position again and feel safe. I mean, the beauty of the sport is if I did, if I don't feel safe or comfortable, there's, you can always resort to just tapping out and just telling the person stop. Like I don't feel comfortable. It's, it's one of those, one of those beauty, beautiful sports. So, um, I kind of, I want to talk to, to you about jujitsu a little bit, but first, um, let's talk a little tea. Right, what are you, yeah. what are you drinking today? Uh, so I'm drinking this stuff. Um, <laughs> my mom actually buys it at Costco and it's labeled as tea. Um, yeah. but I'm not really sure that it is tea because there's no like actual tea leaves in it. But, um, I guess it's tea in the sense that you mix it with hot water and it tastes good. Uh, and it's supposedly good for you, but it's like a mix of, um, of citron and, um, I might be saying that wrong. Uh, maybe it's citron and honey and ginger. So it's pretty good. It's kind of mm. like a jam almost. So you can eat it by itself too. Um, oh, but I, okay. I prefer it in hot tea and then like at the very end, I'll eat the, the pieces that are at the bottom. Interesting. I, I'm, I'm interested in it, but yeah, like you said, I don't know. It's if you're, if there's people who are listening who are true tea, um, experts or connoisseurs, it's like tea is not, is only the plant that comes from or the the drink that comes from the camellia sinensis plant so like you're saying that doesn't have like a green tea a black tea a white tea something like that in there um just like those herbs the citron ginger and everything but that's interesting the so it's like a jam but you that that could be like really a good mix into like a green tea like a hot green tea i was thinking that too the the only issue is my so i don't have a lot of tea here that i actually like most yeah. of the tea here is tea that my parents like, and it's not necessarily um, the kind that I would drink. Um, yeah. There's one tea, actually, that I totally would drink. It's from Adagio Teas. Um, I don't know if you've mm. shopped there before, but mm-hmm. uh, it's like a peach tea, and it's black tea with um, sunflower petals, which I had told you before our podcast. Yes. I'm allergic to sunflower seeds. Uh, I'm not sure about the petals, but I just kind of figure stay away from Best it and not risk stay it. away, yeah. 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 I was glad you told me that because, like I said, I... I wanted to send you some tea and it's like that would have been the worst case scenario to hear <laughs> i gave you i sent you to the hospital because of something you're running around looking for my epipen right now yeah right oh terrible that would have been but you said so you're not sure about sunflower petals just sunflower seeds. yeah okay. i'm sure there's some kind of test for it it's very odd like i've talked to like a few random doctors here and there and mm-hmm. they're even surprised they're like you're allergic to sunflower seeds like that's so bizarre yeah. and the, the reason, like, one of the big things that made me realize that I'm allergic, like, I knew before because I had a few, like, smaller um, reactions to stuff with sunflower seeds. Um, but the reason that, like, really made me serious about it is that one time I ate something with sunflower seed butter in it, uh, and that sent me to the hospital. So, mm. sunflower seed butter, what's funny about it is that's usually used for people who are, who are allergic to peanuts and can't have peanut butter. So, I'm the opposite. I have to have peanut butter because I'm allergic to sunflower seeds. Yeah, I, I completely do find that fascinating just because, like you said, one, I've never heard of someone with a sunflower butter allergy or seed allergy that is. And um, yeah, yeah, it's just it's that's just interesting. So um, 
and you said you, you you're not sure about sunflower petals right you're just uh yeah yeah because that is that is something i've found there's a few there's a few teas that i like to drink that have like cornflower petals and i'm not sure if that's the same you, when you told me that i'm like i'm just gonna stick away from the flowers <laughs> i think yeah, I'm not sure how it is, honestly, with other um, with other flowers. Um, I've also found it's interesting. Like, there's a lot of potato chips that have sunflower oil in them, mm. um, and those I'm fine with. Uh, I've had like hmm. every type of salt and vinegar chip, and they all have um, sunflower oil in them. Uh, and upon a little bit of further research, I figured it out. The oil doesn't have any actual protein, and allergies are actually reactive with proteins in foods. So, Whoa. if you with the butter, for example, it's got the butter, uh, it's got the protein in it, um, yeah. but the oil is just liquid fat, so it doesn't have any protein. Yeah, okay. That kind of makes sense to me. I'm also not a food it's scientist. It's bro science. It's bro yeah. science. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I think I, I think I learned in a health class in like high school that allergies have to do with protein, so that was kind of like what triggered it. Yeah. Like maybe that's what it is, and I, I think I even posted it on Facebook as like a kind of hive mind question for my friends. Yeah. Um, and one guy who's got a PhD in something totally unrelated to allergies, he's like, a, I think a computer scientist, um, commented about the proteins. And I was like, well, you're smart. You know what you're talking about. That's how <laughs> it's it enough works. information that I need. Yeah. <laughs> have to, we'll have to loop in uh, Amy Andes on this one from, from episode 11, Bonzo Butter. Check it out, people. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. It's fascinating. So what is your tea experience like do you have do you like tea i guess first off is that like a is it a go-to drink of yours or what, yeah, what's your um, tea experience yeah i don't know if i'd say it's a go-to drink um i do like it uh i like both tea and coffee i'm not really like a i used to be only a tea person and not really a big fan of coffee but lately um pretty much since graduating college and joining the real world i've realized that <laughs> coffee is a, a necessary nutrient on the food pyramid um but my tea journey it's kind of an interesting story. So I'm a Russian speaking Jew, uh, which kind of bakes tea into my, uh, my heritage because, um, Russians just culturally really like to, uh, yeah. you know, sit down, have, have tea and mm-hmm. have crackers and all kinds of stuff. Um, but as a kid, I was never really that into tea or just hot be- beverages in general. Like even hot cocoa, I had to drink at like room temperature cause I didn't like <laughs> it being too hot. I was the uh, same way. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I think when I was a freshman in high school, I don't remember exactly what triggered it, but I was like, you know what, I'm going to try tea and like actually try to like it. And I had a friend in one of my classes who um, had recently gotten really into loose leaf teas and was working at a tea shop in Vernon Hills. Um, I don't remember what the place was called. Hmm. Tea Harbor, maybe? I think they've closed since then. Um, But uh, he was working there and kind of like introduced me to a few different teas. Um, And it kind of stemmed from there. Like my sister at the time was also um, into loose leaf teas and she and her husband would like give me teas that they bought from Tiavana to try. Um, And so I kind of found teas that I like and teas that I don't like. Um, Mostly like herbal stuff, which tea purists probably wouldn't call tea because it's like, like rooibos, for example, I don't know if it's got um, any actual tea leaves in it that would make it a tea. No. Yeah. It's the the um, African red bush. Yeah, Yeah. It's, I, I love rooibos and it's uh but it's from africa and yeah considered like an african red bu- african red bush and completely different plant than the camellia sinensis but a really awesome plant i i love it for i mean the flavor is so good it's like honey um and 
the health benefits are, are really cool, like really good for your heart health, a lot of antioxidants, and there's no caffeine in it. So different from the Camellia sinensis where you can enjoy it. That's one of my go-tos at night. I have like a few that I rotate between, but yeah, I love, I love some Roebus. Yeah. Um, so Tiavana actually had this one that was like Roebus chai, and then I would mix mm. that with their Matevana. Um, which is kind of like a, it's a mate with like chocolate in it, I think. Um, Sounds amazing. So mixed, it was actually really good. And then when they stopped selling loose leaf teas and closed all the Tiavana stores, when Starbucks bought them, uh, I was really bummed because I could, I couldn't keep buying those teas that I liked. Yeah. So you're, you're a mate fan? Uh, yeah, I've never actually tried it in like the super legit way that they make it in, uh, it's from Argentina, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, South America, I don't know if it's, Hmm, that's actually a good point. I actually experienced it first in, in Argentina. Um, but I think there's a lot of South American countries that claim it as like their country's drink. Oh, yeah. So I think it's just kind of native to South America. Um, I don't know if it's like Argentina specifically. have to have to dig a little more into that. But Did yeah. You have it in like that, that metal cup with the metal straw and stuff? Yeah. So Is it a straw or like a stir? I don't even know. If it's, that works. So yeah, it is a straw. That's so that is called so it's actually a gourd. It's not it's the original is not metal. It's it's actually made out of a dried out gourd um or a or a guampa. And they call it a mate. That's actually what the uh mate the word mate comes from. Um it means kind of like that whole basically drinking apparatus. And so the bombilla or the straw that you have is a metal um, forget what it's made out of, but it's like a metal filter and straw. So the way to do it, and it's it's crazy. Like when you're down there in Argentina and they pour this near boiling, because like there is a good temperature. It's close to boiling, but not boiling that you want to um, brew mate. At. And like how you can tell if you have a good um, a good cup of of brewed mate is on the top there will be like a nice thin layer of um, of bubbles. And you, yeah, there's like a certain temperature that you can hit those bubbles at. It's like, again, boiling's too much. And it's, and like, if you don't hit that, it's like around like 205 degrees Fahrenheit. But when you drink it, like people start, they just drink it, they pour it and they drink it like right away. And talking about like not liking hot drinks that much, like it burns it. Like I remember for, I was there for a week, two weeks um, in Argentina. And by the end of like that, People, I could see people have like right on like the edge of their lip, they where they would put it, like the bombilla. There would oh, yeah. be like just like a callous like burn mark, and like it, to them, just because they drink it every day, it's so, it's such a part of their routine. It's just like, yeah, it's like callous. They're like they don't even feel it anymore. For me, I was so sensitive. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's but it's good. Dude. Like it, talk about like being having the energy and. That's like my go-to instead of coffee. If like I need a big energy boost, it's mate for sure. You said you've coffee? never. Oh, that. Do you not drink coffee? Mm-hmm. Are you only a tea person? I mean, I have drinking coffee. Um, coffee makes me pretty jittery. Uh, I just don't like the feeling of it. I like the taste. I've got. I've grown to like the taste because similarly to you, um, I started drinking tea in high school where i just i needed something i needed like a little bit of energy boost and i didn't 
coffee actually like scared me because of how like everyone was like, oh, you're going to get addicted to it or uh, like, yeah, you're, you're just going to re- rely on it like solely. And, and also I didn't like the flavor that much. It was too bitter for me. Um, so I went to tea and stuck with that for for the long haul at this point. So now I've gotten, kind of gotten into coffee just mostly because um, my girlfriend, she's into coffee. And so she, she'll sometimes like brew it. And I love, I've always loved the smell of coffee. Like that is like waking up and just smelling coffee. Something about it. Yeah. It, it warms my soul. <laughs> and so I decided to try to drink it and I, and I've liked the flavor of it now, but again, the feeling of coffee versus tea, it just can't. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't get over like the jitteriness versus the the calm, relaxed focus that I get with tea. Right. So you said you're Russian. Are you from Russia? No. So my parents are from Ukraine, from the former Soviet Union. Um, And they left Ukraine and moved to Israel uh, in, I believe, 1990. Mm. Um, And I was born in Israel in 95. So I'm from Israel. um, And then we moved when I was about two and a half, first to London for my dad's work, and then to California, and then to Chicago. Um, so moved around a lot, but I grew up most of my life in Chicago. Yeah. So do you... Chicago, because I know Chicago Chicago purists would call me a, a liar for saying that I grew yeah, up in Chicago when I'm from Buffalo Grove. <laughs> right. I get, get that all the time. Um, so you were born in Israel. How long did you live in Israel? Do you remember any of that time there? I don't know. I We moved when I was about two and a half. So uh, maybe even younger. So I don't don't really remember a ton other than like family stories and home videos that I see. And then you said to London, was it? Yeah, we were in London for about a year. um, And then the Bay Area and California for like, let's say a year and a half or two years. Okay. That's nice. Yeah. Do you remember any stories from like those areas? Um, Also like kind of word of mouth, word of mouth family stories, but um, Mm -hmm. Like in London, for example, I was kind of, I was still really young and I was learning English for the first time. Yeah. Um, and I was also still kind of uh, trying to balance Hebrew and Russian. So like I would sometimes say sentences incorporating all three languages, yes. which I wish I could do now because I don't speak Hebrew anymore because if you don't use it, you lose it. Um, mm-hmm. And I, like as soon as we left Israel, pretty much um, Russian and English took over for me and Hebrew mm-hmm. kind of took the, the back burner spot. Um, and eventually I kind of forgot it, but trying to relearn it. Um, but there was one specific time when we were in London and there was a dog, uh, the neighboring dog, like trying to dig under our fence and get under our fence. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the exact like wording I used, but I, I basically said like, grandpa, grandpa, look, that dog is trying to dig under our fence, but in all three different languages (laughs) mixed up. Grandpa's like, I think there's a dog doing something, but I yeah. don't know. You're speaking all over the place. Yeah. My, there's my also grand- this. Oh, yeah. go ahead. No, no, no. Please finish. I was going to say this. Um, the other thing I remembered from London was, um, so part of why we moved was because of growing um, terrorism happening in Israel mm-hmm. and my parents not wanting myself and my sister to serve in like the mandatory IDF uh, service because... Um, in Israel, everyone serves boys serve for three years, uh, and girls serve for two. Um, 
except like certain people who have exemptions of, of different sorts. Is that uh, like at 18 or like what age for? Yeah. So like as soon as okay. you finish high school at 18, um, you go start your military service and like some people stay longer. Some yeah. girls will serve for, for longer than their two years or they'll, they'll become an officer and kind of like move up the ranks. Um, but there's, there's like a prayer basically that they say in the hospital, not so much a prayer, but like a wish that the nurses mm-hmm. and doctors say to like new mothers um, which is that like may your child never have to serve in the IDF because mm. may all the like all the problems that are causing people to have to go to war may those go away. Yeah. Um, so basically, my parents like during that time of like increased terrorism, they didn't want to um, continue living in Israel, and they felt it would be safer to move um, to London. So we get to London. My parents are super excited, uh, starting their new life, and I'm all like sad as a two and a half, three year old. And in Hebrew, I go, in Israel, I had my toy car. I had all my toys. Here, I don't have anything because we had just moved and I didn't bring any toys with me. So, like, first day in London, my dad takes me to the toy store to get a toy car. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. But, like, yeah, I know. It's like the naivety of of a child. Like, all my toys are gone. Like, what the heck? (laughs) I I had a great life. Yeah. Yeah. It just took you out of a country where, you know, your bus could have been blown up by a suicide bomber. Yeah, but I want my toy car. <laughs> but there were toy cars there. Yeah. It's like okay, we can get toy cars here too. <laughs> Don't worry. Yeah, no, that's that's crazy. I think one, it's kind of crazy. I didn't know that about Israel that the that everyone served. I think that's cool too. Like eh, again, I I use cool uh, sparingly, but I think it's interesting how both men and women to serve like has that always been a thing because I, I unfortunately just like throughout history i mean women have not always been compared to men equally and so has that like has that always been a thing or is that a more recent and when i say recent like this was obviously when you were two so i actually don't know when um women could start serving the idf uh, okay. i'm honestly not sure about that yeah. um I would think that it's been like a lot of time and maybe like in the early days they were serving probably in less combat roles. Mm. Um, but now there's plenty of women like on the front lines of combat. There's like yeah. female fighter jet awesome. pilots in the Israeli military. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like it's a, it's a touchy subject for a lot of people, I think like mandatory mm-hmm. mi- military service. Um, but I think it, it's one of those things that might work in a small country like Israel. Um, I think it would probably be great for, for a lot of countries because I think it would, it kind of makes people mature. Like in Israel mm. at 18, you can start legally drinking, but you also serve in the military. And while you're on duty, you're not allowed to drink. Yeah. Um, and so I think it becomes less of a taboo, like just alcohol as an example, it becomes less taboo in Israel because you're around it when, when you're younger and you're not really like tempted uh, as an 18, 19 year old. So like, get a fake ID and go to a bar or something. And you also don't have to because it's legal to drink there. But I think the military service specifically like matures people a lot faster. Like I've noticed a lot of people in Israel who are about my age or a year or two um, uh, older or younger than me. Mm -hmm. um, They just seem kind of a lot more like put together and mature. And like they don't start college over there until after military service. So you kind of go into college already more um, developed as a person too. Yeah. Now, what I would be interested in, because I think they're right, I think there's like a discipline that you get out of military. Um, 
I think there's other ways too of being disciplined, but I am interested into the, is there any increase in mental health? Oh, like effects, like, cause as we know with fighting with military, it's a lot of, well, I, I, I say a lot, I don't actually know like numbers, but there's a lot of, um, PTSD and stuff like that. So I, that, that is, that would be of interest too. I don't, do you know anything about that? Like in Israel specifically? So in Israel specifically, no, I don't. Um, I've actually thought about that a lot and like, I've kind of thought of theories that I have about it, but I don't have actual, actual statistics or anything to back any of this up. So ah, let's hear them. <laughs> um, and, and speaking as a person who has no prior military experience, just full disclosure. Mm. Um, I was going to ask you that as well. Yeah. yeah. What I would imagine is that, um, in a society where everybody serves in the military, when you come back from military service to reintegrate into civilian society, I think it's less of a shock than mm. in a place like the U.S., for example, where most of us really don't serve true. in the military. Yeah. So, right, when our veterans come back from Iraq and Afghanistan, they're coming from, like, cra- crazy close-quarter combat and all this stuff and, like, people shooting at you and trying to blow you up. And then they come to, like, a grocery store where most people aren't in that mentality mm-hmm. uh, and don't know what that mentality would even be like. <clears throat> so then they... Like I had a veteran who was talking to me once who said that he was at a grocery store and I think he ended up got, getting arrested because of this. Um, like an old lady came up and reached behind him to grab something like off a shelf. Mm, yeah. He had just come back from uh, from serving overseas yeah. and he didn't know what was going on and he like freaked out and I think he hit her. But like he didn't, oh, he obviously didn't mean to hurt her or anything. Yeah. But he just a had like a, yeah, it was like a PTSD kind of induced um, reaction where I think in Israel because everybody's served, you come back into a society that, that like they've already been there. Yeah. Like if you go to work for somebody, your boss has already served in the military. Maybe he's had a higher rank than you. Maybe he hasn't, but you're going back into a society where it's not like a, it's not like a unique thing to have served in the mil- military mm-hmm. because everyone had that experience. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's, it's both less of a shock and also for those that need the help, it might be easier to come by it because again, everyone's had that experience. Everyone's, yeah. Yeah. There's more empathy that they're like, again, to a woman getting hit, getting struck by a man in a grocery store has no idea what this man has been through. Right. And while it's a warranted reaction because like literally it was just a instinct. It wasn't even like he thought about it and then, and then acted. It was just, he felt compromised and then struck. Whereas, like, if that were to happen in a place like Israel, it's like, okay, was he having, like, a moment, like, a PTSD moment? It's like, okay, we can think about that. Whereas, like, everyone just saw a man struck a woman, arrest that guy. Like, so that's that's interesting. Have you ever read the book uh, Tribe by Sebastian Junger? No, I haven't. I think I've heard of it. Yeah, it kind of touches on things like this. It touches on the, basically, the, the tribe that you um that you bring together like your your unit your squad whatever i don't know the proper terminology again i don't have military experience either um and how you become like brothers and sisters because of the trauma that you go through and when you come back when you it talks specifically about soldiers leaving war and joining civilian life and how there's an integration that is just so difficult because they're so used to having those people with them who understand what they're going through could because they're going through it too 
and they're surrounded by that. And so they're like, you, you ask some veterans or at least the ones that like he talks about in this book. And they talk about how the best time of their life was when they were in war with these people, which is crazy to think about. Like the best time of your life is when you're nearly, you can, you're putting your life on the line and it's because you're surrounded by people who understand you, who get it. Whereas like when you come here, it's like, you're just misunderstood. You don't really understand life or people don't understand your life. And there's just a disconnect. And so it was kind of trying to bridge those gaps between like civilians who've never experienced it and can't really fully understand and grasp that and veterans. And I find that, I think that's kind of similar to what we're talking about. Yeah. I think, I think another part of it too, is that in Israel, like whenever there's a war, it's in your backyard. Like Mm. in the United States, I think something that not enough Americans appreciate and it's like huge, um, is that most of our recent wars have been overseas. So it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Like we're, it's nice because we don't have to deal with planes flying over our heads and dropping bombs on us uh, and stuff like that. But it creates the situation where we're not really even aware that that's going on on the other side of the world and that we're sending our own American soldiers to go and serve in those places and then bringing them back without much of a transition and without um, maybe proper care uh, Mm. that, that would help deal with some of those um, transition issues. Whereas, I mean, in Israel, everyone kind of appreciates the military because the military walks among you. Like you go onto a bus and then three soldiers will come on with their M16s yeah. uh, or you'll, you'll see people at train stations in uniform. Um, and not everyone in, in Israel in the military is in a combat role, but everyone who's serving is generally walking around in uniform and you can recognize them. Um, and it's just a part of the culture there more so than uh, it is here because here it's mostly, it seems like a veteran culture rather than a yeah. kind of active duty culture. Whereas there. Like everyone knows like, oh, you're in uniform. You get on the bus for free. Uh, you get on the trains for free. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I don't want to speak, uh, <laughs> speak too incorrectly on that, yeah. but it's more ingrained in the society. And I think that's what makes the mental health piece a little bit um, more smooth. I don't want to say more easy because I don't know necessarily that it, that it is, um, mm-hmm. nor do I know the numbers, but yeah. um, I would say that that's, those are kind of the big factors. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great point. And Again, thankful. I'm, I think it's, I'm thankful I do not have to experience war. I don't, I don't want to. And I, and I don't think anybody should have to. I like it's a, war is only a, it's only a, a, I feel like a torment to just life in general and to so many people. So the fact that we don't have to experience it here is, is an absolute blessing, but it does again, create that gap of, being able to empathize with people who do experience it and do live it. And we just, that's something we cannot understand. And again, I don't want to understand, but I want to be able to understand where someone's coming from, if that makes sense. And, and yeah, it breeds, it breeds that, that naivety. Um, I, I think I mentioned this on another podcast and that we were talking about where like distance breeds naivety, meaning like, when you're far away from a subject, from a topic, from war, from whatever it is, I mean, talk about tea, talk about war, talk about like literally just a topic, you kind of have a naive look at it. Like, oh, it's just this, like it's, it's just, but like, then you step closer to it and you really dig into it and you're like, 
oh, this is an entire world. Like you can really dig into the fine details of of this, whether again, whether it's a, a tea leaf versus or a war. And you really start to realize there's so much more here that I had no idea. And then it humbles you. And I think that's, um, I've been trying to, in my own life, when I have a a thought of, oh, like, why can't they do it? Isn't that just like easy? I've started to be like, okay, what else is going on there? Like, there's probably more that I don't know than I think I know. Right. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, I think like one of the things that is interesting going back to like what you're saying about how people are kind of forced into they 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 go into serving immediately into kind of those formative years of like 18, 19, 20 years old. I think there is something to that in in instilling that discipline in something. And like I kind of mentioned, I think that there's because that's again, I would say a blessing that we don't have to do that here in the United States. I'd say that's a blessing, but I think that there are things that should that people should do to instill that discipline. And I think one of those things that is has been that I've noticed in my life, and I'm curious, and this is like I said, I wanted to talk to you about this, was Brazilian jiu-jitsu and martial arts in general kind of has instilled a little bit of a yeah, it definitely has instilled a bit of a discipline. For me personally, it starts more back to my wrestling career in high school and just sports in general. But I'm curious because I know that you, I think, recently have kind of undertaken jiu-jitsu. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, I started jiu-jitsu December of 2019. Okay. Um, and then was super excited about it. I'm, I'm one of those people who, like, when I get into something... I like dive headfirst into it and get obsessed. Um, and like, as I've gotten older, I've kind of done that with a lot of different things to where now I'm like, I don't know how I have time for stuff because I, like, <laughs> there's not enough time in the day to do all the stuff that you want to be able to do. Yeah. Like everyone has the same 24 hours, but when you carve out work and whatever else you have to do, meals, mm-hmm. like you only have so much time left uh, to devote to the stuff that you want to do for your free time kind of. Um, so it's kind of a problem doing too many things, but yeah, I got it. Going back to what we were talking about, got into jujitsu um, while I was living in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, yeah. So Florida. what? So what actually like inspired you to start? Um, well, going back a few years before that, my senior year of high school, I had started CrossFit. Um, I promise this is connected because CrossFit did not directly uh, lead to jujitsu. <laughs> okay. um, I don't know what your opinions are on CrossFit because I know a lot of people like to make fun of it, which is. Totally no, I, I think just taking a, a quick little little sidebar about CrossFit, I think there is 100% a place for it. I've never tried it. I've never really gotten into CrossFit. I My lifting routines are CrossFit-esque because I like the high-intensity type working out. Um, the only thing I find silly with CrossFit is the pull-ups. I, I figured you'd say that. Yeah, yeah, that's like the one thing that I feel like everyone makes fun of CrossFit for, and I'm and I'll join that train. I think it's silly, but I at the same time, I, it just is. It's too much move. I, if when I do a pull-up, I like kind of the strict all the way down, all the way up, <laughs> kind of just really work in the back. It seems there's it seems like I'm going to throw throw up something if I do it so, the way that. So CrossFitters do strict pull-ups also. 
It's a okay. <laughs> Thank you for the clarification. It's, a, it's totally a misconception that we only ever do <laughs> kipping pull-ups where we look like we're flopping around like a fish. But yeah. those those come into play when you're doing these workouts where, especially at the competitive level, because people compete in CrossFit too, there's yeah. the CrossFit games and all these other different competitions. When you're competing to try to do as many reps of something as you can, mm-hmm. uh, and if the standards for that movement allow, then you'll use every advantage to get as many movements or as many 100%. repetitions of it as you can. So if, yeah. if kipping is allowed, then you're going to do, it's a lot easier to do a hundred kipping pull-ups than a hundred strict ones. Yeah, definitely. But the strict ones for sure have their place because, um, as I kind of learned also like early on in my, in my CrossFit career, I wasn't like, I don't want to say career. I wasn't, I've never been professional, in it. <laughs> but early on in my CrossFit adventure, uh, I was not great at like strict pull-ups. I could maybe do one. Mm-hmm. And like, I started doing kipping pull-ups and my shoulders were always hurting. Mm. Uh, and then as I started to get my numbers for strict pull-ups up and I could do those better, uh, my shoulders hurt less. So mm. you kind of build that foundational strength with yeah. strict pull-ups and then it allows your shoulders to take on a lot more. Yeah. Um, did you ever yeah. compete okay. like amateurly as a, yeah. in CrossFit? Yeah. I did a handful of like both individual and team or partner, um, CrossFit competitions, which are a lot of fun. It's like usually, um, the local like small ones are like one day and you do three or four different workouts. So you're pretty sore afterwards. Yeah. Um, but they're a ton of fun, especially the team ones where you're like working out with other people. And, mm. uh, at least if you, if you want to slack off, you feel bad about it. Um, whereas if you're, if you're competing individually and you feel like slacking off, you got to hold yourself <laughs> to that standard. Whereas <laughs> when you're with five other people, they'll yell at you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So sorry, go back to, the story with CrossFit yeah. and Jiu-Jitsu and everything. So prior to starting CrossFit, I hadn't really like found a thing that was consistently working for me for fitness. Um, okay. As a kid, like up to fifth or sixth grade, uh, I was doing karate. That didn't really stick. Um, in high school, I gave Krav Maga a few months. That didn't mm. really stick. Um, but I got into CrossFit and I think something about just the, the community aspect of it, like people who are there and holding you accountable. Like I remember one time in the first few months, I was there like, multiple people gave me a lot of crap for missing a week or two of, of CrossFit workouts because I just didn't have time. Yeah. Uh, and they were like, where the hell have you been? Like, get, <laughs> get your butt back in the gym. I love um, it, yeah. So that kind of kept me sticking to to working out and, like, wanting to be active, um, which led to then, like, a few kind of short-lived stints of different sport uh, attempts. Like, freshman year of, uh, of college, I tried rowing on the Illini rowing team. Okay, yeah, um, which was a lot of fun. Waking up at four a.m. and uh, yeah, rowing man, that's, very very cold water. I was gonna say that's. Um, I was interested in that and decided against it at the at, at the University of Iowa. I don't know why. I don't know because I was kind of similar. I was like ex- just exploring the opportunities and like I was like this is something new that I've never done before. Um, that sounds terrible. 4 a.m. Wake. You had to probably be at practice at 4 a.m. Or was it wake up at 4 a.m.? No, it was on the days that you were on the water. Because we also, our our team was a club team. Uh, and at the yeah. time, we didn't have all that many boats. So we had to rotate like who was um, going on the water and who was going to okay. be working out in the gym on like yeah. a stationary um, rowing machine or erg, as you would call it. Um, and the only reason I got into it is because of CrossFit, because CrossFit uses ergs. So... Mm. Like I showed up at, at tryouts like the first couple of days um, and I mentioned that I do CrossFit and that's how I got to rowing. And one of the people that was there was like, oh yeah, but CrossFitters usually have really bad rowing form, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, are you really trying to like turn me off of the sport that I'm just telling you how excited I am to yeah. get into? <laughs> like, like, come on, dude. 
why do you care what brought me to it, right? Yeah. Um, and then like two days later, I proved to have really good rowing form thanks to the CrossFit gym that I went to having good coaches. Nice. Yeah. And I was pointed out as an example. So uh, <laughs> not every not every rule um, is meant to stay a rule exactly. um, about CrossFitters being bad rowers. But that led me to then trying to be an Israeli bobsledder, which we can talk about uh, after yeah. college. 100% and then, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> Let's talk about that right now. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to let that one slide away from us. You want to talk about that right now before you do it too? I do. I, I do. You can't just throw in Israeli bobsledder <laughs> casually and let me sit on that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to just sit on that one. So let's dig into that. What is, so first of all, bobsledding in general, that's badass. The only thing I know about that is the Olympics and Jamaican bobsled team, cool runnings. <laughs> so, yeah, so cool runnings was a joke that I, I heard a lot when I was telling people that I was trying to be an Israeli bobsledder because exactly. that kind of sounds like the Jamaican bobsled. <laughs> Basically like, the same. You're coming thing. from a desert country and you're trying to be a winter sport athlete. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So yeah. talk. Yeah. What, how did you even get started with that? Like what's, what's up with that? So like all of my good stories, they start with CrossFit. <laughs> um, one of the, co- actually two of the coaches, um, at the time at my gym in, uh, in Illinois, shout out to elite athletic development in Arlington Heights. Um, two of the coaches went to park city for the U S bobsled and skeleton combine. Bet you didn't mm-hmm. know that was a thing. Did not. Um, yeah, it's basically a test of your like sprinting and running and like explosive power basically, because that those are the things that, um, you need to be good at for bobsled. So they went and like one of them actually uh, like started doing skeleton, which is the bobsled, like bobsled. You go head sport. first, right? Head first on your stomach. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Wild men or women, women. That's just stupid in my opinion. But And you've got like, you're wearing this helmet and it's about an inch off the ice. So like if oh. you move your head down just a little bit, you're scraping your helmet against the ice. And I can't imagine that feeling good on your head. Did, um, and you never, never, you never did. Skeleton, I never tried it. Did you? Okay. No, I'm too big. I would have needed to lose like, more pounds than I'd like to say, probably like 50 or 60 pounds <laughs> okay. to do skeleton um, okay. competitively. Yeah. But um, yeah, so that just kind of got the gears turning in my head and I was like, oh, bobsled and skeleton, that's kind of interesting. And then my senior year of college, I was watching the Winter Olympics uh, and I see this guy named AJ Edelman, mm. um, who was Israel's first skeleton Olympian. Mm. And uh, I'm watching him and I'm watching like the bobsled guys. And I see that like what all of them have in common is strong legs and fast sprints. And I'm like, okay, well, in CrossFit, I'm not known for having an engine. Like I'm not a cardio machine. Uh, I'm very much like a sprint athlete and then like um, red line and die 10 seconds into the workout. Um, But I have a lot of lower body strength. So maybe I should give this a a shot. And like I actually texted one of my coaches, um, one of the ones who went to the combine. It's like, hey, if I like tried to pursue this, would you help me get ready for it? And he's like, yeah, for sure. That would be awesome. Um, and then for a few months, like I kind of didn't think about it cause like then I had to graduate and all that. And I didn't really have time to even think about it. And then I see that same skeleton athlete, AJ Edelman post on his Instagram that Israel's recruiting for bobsled and skeleton athletes. It's like, all right, let me, let me see where this goes. Yeah. Uh, messaged him not knowing where it really would go. And mm-hmm. he ended up connecting me with the president of the Israeli bobsled and skeleton federation. Whoa. Also bet you didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> uh, and he basically told me, we've got this, um, this athlete who's looking for a, a, uh, a brakeman, which is the person who sits in the back of the sled and pulls the brake lever. 
okay. um, at the very end, which is like not the most fun position to be in because you're, you're sitting with your head like between your knees experiencing the full brunt of the run and then your job is at the end you pop up and like pull the brakes uh but it's a pretty important yeah it's a very important job but it's a very bumpy um ride yeah the back's Uh, always if i've learned anything from roller coasters (laughs) the back was always the whippiest (laughs) yeah exactly um there were a couple times when like i would like kind of bounce in the sled i only actually Mm. sledded for about a week honestly um before realizing that that it really wasn't for me but um, there were times when, like, I bounced up on the sled and I was like, oh, crap, am I going to fall out? Because uh, there's not a whole ton to hold on to in there either. It's like a bunch of, like, metal bars and stuff. Yeah. Uh, so, I was just kind of holding on to whatever I could and hoping that would work. Um, so, yeah. So, I got in touch with him. He told me that they have a driver who steers the sled looking for a brakeman. Um, this guy named Dave Nichols. He's out in Park City. Uh, and he's actually a para bobsled athlete, so he doesn't have use of his legs um, because of a skiing skiing accident that he had years ago. Yeah. Um, and he actually like helped start the U.S. Uh, para bobsled program, and then was like one of the people trying to make para bobsled uh, an Olympic sport, like in the Paralympics. Um, and then he switched over to Team Israel because he's Jewish, got Israeli citizenship, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and has been training and competing for Israel ever since in both two-man and four-man. So he's actually recruited a few more guys now um, and can do four-man sled, which makes him a lot more competitive since he starts in the sled and can't be pushing. So it's like three guys pushing against four guys pushing versus one guy pushing against two, if that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I loved the training for it, to be honest, because it was the strongest I'd ever gotten in my life. Um, Mm. Like my deadlift numbers were crazy. My clean numbers were crazy. Yeah. Um, I was jumping very high heights and sprinting pretty fast sprints. Um, So I was enjoying that. And then I went out to Park City and drove with him to Calgary, Canada, um, where we bobsledded on a track that I believe no longer is even maintained. I think the Canadian government like stopped um, using it. So I I can say that I was one of the last people in the last few years to use it, which is kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I took a few runs and realized it really wasn't for me. Like, it felt like my brain was, like, rattling around in my skull. Mm. Um, and yeah. it wasn't necessarily the best uh, long-term thing for me. Uh, I'm still very much a fan of the team. And, like, I follow I follow them. And eventually I met another Israeli skeleton guy who's down in South Florida and, like, helped me find my apartment uh, when I moved down to Fort Lauderdale. So, nice. Um, is there a lot of injury in, um, in bobsledding? Um, I don't know about a ton. I would imagine like it's probably about on par with, uh, with other sports. Um, I didn't know a whole ton of people that were, um, were injured necessarily, but like you could definitely like things can go catastrophically wrong when you're of course, yeah. flying down a, an ice track <laughs> in a metal bullet. That's, I was like the, in my mind, I feel like there's either with bobsled, it's either all or nothing. You're either perfectly healthy or it's like you're dead because <laughs> you're going so, you go so fast. Like how, yeah. how fast do you go typically? I'm one of those. Um, what was the fastest I went? I don't know, probably like 100-ish miles an hour. Oh, yeah, 90 to 100. Casually and like, all that there right. is is <laughs> protecting you. <laughs> right. That's like, they, oh man. That's... They have like the, the tracks that um that are built for bobsledding they have all sorts of like required elements like there's different types of turns and stuff like that Mm -hmm. but there's also regulations about how how they can make the turns and it's all like engineering stuff that's way 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 above my pay grade yeah so they regulate how fast you can um, make each track because 
in some of those turns, you reach upwards of 5Gs. And if you're at 5Gs for too long, you can black out. And like inside of a bobsled on an ice track is the last place you want to be blacking out. My, my driver <laughs> yeah. actually was telling me that one time he had a guy who was like a novice brake man in his, uh, in his sled. And the way it works basically is like you start your run, the driver steers, and he can see the track, but you can't because you've got your head tucked between your legs. Yeah. Um, and like generally you learn the track and you kind of like learn all the turns and you know when you're approaching the end, but the driver will yell to you, brake, brake, brake. And that's when you like pop up and pull the, the brake yeah. bar. Well, he had this brakeman who he starts yelling, uh, brake, 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 and the guy's not braking. And he looks back and the guy's blacked out. Oh, no. totally unconscious in the back of the sled. And he had to like somehow reach behind him and grab the brake thing himself and break it. Um, oh my, oh my, that's like, I'm, I'm scared. I'm that you're, you're talking, you're, I want you to know I will never be bobsledding in my bob, life. Bobsled ledge. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. that. Oh my God. That's terrifying, but it makes sense. I guess if you're going so fast, is there a way, so when you're, is there a way to train your body? So that you don't, can you get used, is that something you can get used to or is it a breathing technique or like what's, how do you not black out? I have no clue. I was lucky enough that on all the runs that I did, um, both with my driver and I was a brakeman for another driver whose brakeman hadn't, uh, hadn't flown in yet. Um, I didn't black out on any of them, so I don't really know, but I'm sure there is a way to, um, to get used to it. Like I'm sure a lot of fighter pilots have to do that because they reach Mm -hmm. crazy G's, um, when they're flying up there. Yeah. That's, ah, like I said, I don't see myself doing that in the near future <laughs> anytime. I, my life's crazy enough with jujitsu and <laughs> uh, podcasting. Messing up your LCL. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, I would, wait, so, yeah. I would think, though, on. since you were asking about, like, injuries and bobsled, my guess, and, I again, I don't have the numbers on this, so I don't know, but my guess is that most of the injuries in, like, bobsled, skeleton, and luge are, like, burn marks because yeah. a lot of times, like, especially skeleton and luge they're going all over the place on like a little tiny like metal lunch tray basically um and basically like if your shoulders are wider than your your sled and you end up bumping into a wall going 80 or 90 miles an hour like you've got ice burning your arm so i've seen some pretty bad burn marks i never got any because i was always inside the sled but like there have been bobsleds where they'll turn over onto their side and like the three Mm -hmm. guys in the back fly out and you just see three dudes in speed suits, like flying down ice uh, and yeah. probably getting their whole bodies burned. Are those speed suits made out of any fancy material or like what's the... They're like I got spandex, I guess. Okay. But like Whatever nothing like to protect you from those burns? So generally you'd wear like a burn vest underneath. I had a burn vest. I think it had like really short sleeves. So like it kind of protects all of your, your torso. Main stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The main stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Your helmet protects your head, obviously. So the helmet in bobsled is not like a special bobsled helmet. It's just motorcycle helmets. Okay. Um, in skeleton, they have their own like specialized helmets. They're a lot smaller. Uh, but in bobsled, you just use a motorcycle one. Yeah. Uh, um, makes sense. Pretty much the same thing, I guess. Yeah. Going, You can go just as fast on the motorcycle. <laughs> Hopefully <laughs> not, not down a bobsled track. Yeah. Oh, no. God, no. That would be... Uh, ugh. That's just scary. So you are doing that and you say after... You only did that for you. You only did a, like a, a couple runs for a week. You said pretty much, yeah. So I spent some time in what's called the Ice House, which is like an indoor facility with just the beginning part of a bobsled track, um, and it's got this like frame of a bobsled that you push and uh, 
just practice like your sprint. And that part I loved because that kind of felt like the training that I was doing because all the training that I was doing was like sprinting, sprinting with a sled, lifting, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the actual like being in the bobsled for the minute and a half or whatever going down the track uh, that was like pretty unbearable for me. Yeah. And it, you said like mostly just because the rattling and the shaking and I mean, was it at least fun like and exhilarating? <laughs> the Definitely speed? exhilarating. Yeah. Exhilarating for sure. Um, I think the like the weirdest feeling about it, like I said, I didn't black out from the the crazy like G forces, but when you're like hunched over with your head in between your knees, like it kind of felt like it was compressing everything in my stomach. Mm. Um, so that also wasn't the, the best feeling necessarily. Um, yeah. But you have to stay like as low as you can for aerodynamics, obviously. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you realize that that's just not not the thing for you amazing experience how i guess how long from start to finish was that part of your life honestly only like three or four months like wow the, the training leading up to it and then it was like all right get on a plane and go to go to utah and then drive up to canada um yeah. it was like a very fast three months and a very like yeah a lot of big improvement was made in my in my lifting and all that mm-hmm. um in a pretty short period of time um it feels like it's a bigger part of my life than it was, but uh, yeah, it was only a few months. Yeah, it's well, it's one such a unique experience that I've never heard of anybody personally doing. So that's so cool, just for just to hear about that. And yeah, I, I think just due to the uniqueness of that, it's I don't know. There's something in that that to me, like when you do something unique, it really stands out in your life and really encompasses a full like full time body experience. So really cool. So, okay. After those three or four months, where, where is this now in relation? I guess when, when did you do this? Were you in college? When this? No, this was right after I, yeah, right after I graduated. So this was 2018. Okay. 2018. Um, yeah. So fall of 2018, like November ish. Um, okay. I'm kind of coming back from, from bobsled coming back to Illinois um, going back to like doing CrossFit workouts regularly because before that I had been doing like maybe one CrossFit workout a week just to maintain like a little bit of cardio. Mm-hmm. Um, all my other workouts were like just lifts and sprints. So like, yeah, I really didn't have much, much cardio work other than the one, uh, CrossFit metabolic conditioning workout a week. Yeah. Uh, so kind of slowly started going back to doing those, um, trying to figure out what I wanted to do, uh, professionally. And then I found a job that brought me to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Uh, and around that time, like I already had friends who had done jujitsu. Um, I don't think I actually, I didn't know Corey all too well at the time. And I don't think he had started jujitsu at the time either, but one of my roommates in college, um, was a blue belt and, uh, like he'd always come back from, from like jujitsu practice or, or classes or whatever he was doing at the time. And I was like, Oh, this is really cool. But like your gi always smells like. That, <laughs> a, I didn't ever, yep. ever say that, but I was, was like thinking like, so smelly, like the one thing I know about your martial art is that you get really, really stinky. So um, smelly. <laughs> it's, it's bad. I'm yeah. the guy who sweats too. Like in warmups, I'll be dripping sweat. Like just out of my body. Just, it's like, it knows when I like step into the, into the room my like body just knows like all right start to sweat because we know this is gonna it's gonna get hot and it's gonna get sticky in here so yeah, yeah. but uh, so I know what you mean sorry go yeah. on um yeah so I actually met up with him like right before moving and I was like what do you think about 
like, am I too old to start jujitsu? I was 23, I think at the time. <laughs> yeah, 23. Uh, but granted, I didn't know that much about jujitsu other than like yeah. what I heard on Joe Rogan yeah. um, or Jocko's podcast. Actually, I didn't even listen to Jocko's podcast much at the time. So it was pretty much just like what I would hear from Joe Rogan. Um, and I was like, well, Joe Rogan seems like he's been doing this a long time. Like I might be too old. And my buddy's like, no, like you're never too old to start jujitsu. Like you should mm-hmm. try it. Um, and I got down to Fort Lauderdale and at first, like I didn't rush into doing anything. I didn't rush to join a CrossFit gym, even though there was one like right down the street from me. Yeah. Um, I was just kind of doing my own thing. And then I was like, I need something like more organized, but I don't know if I want it to be CrossFit necessarily. So found a jujitsu place also really close to my apartment. Um, went there just for one trial class and I was pretty much hooked from there. Yeah, that's, I feel like that's kind of what happens. People try it once and then, and they get hooked. And so it's interesting cause you didn't have any, right. You don't have any like grappling experience or, or well, you said you have a little bit of martial arts from the Krav Maga and karate, right? Yes. We did like a little bit of like, even in karate, we did a little bit of like grappling on the ground, but I didn't know a ton from that. Like I still remembered mount and guard and stuff like that, but I didn't really learn any submissions or anything back then. Um, it was pretty much just those few positions. Yeah. Yeah. So you go, you get hooked and yeah, man. So what kind of happens from there? You, do you like sign up like immediately and yeah. start going what, like every day or what's the pretty much. So it's funny. I started going, um, I didn't start going every day, but I started going quite a bit. Uh, and that was December of 2019. Yeah. And then, um, January of 2020, my Academy had this like attendance contest that was like, whoever, whoever gets the most, um, the most classes in January gets a private with, uh, with our professor, whoever got second most got like a free gi, uh, and whoever got third most got like this gift basket with like arm bar soap and all kinds of stuff in there. Um, which is great stuff if you haven't tried it. Yeah. I have not. So you haven't tried arm bar soap? No, not good stuff. I don't know if it, if it's like legit as like important to use that versus other soaps for what's yeah what's the difference like it's so armbar soap sounds like specifically jujitsu stuff yeah what's it is the- i i'll find a bar of it and send you a picture at some point but yeah um it's basically like a bar of soap that supposedly has something in it that like cleans you better than um than normal soap would because you're like in contact with other people and yeah obviously, obviously don't want like yeah. skin diseases and that crap yeah yeah it's not like the the soap that uh that coach cook would give us in the in the wrestling <laughs> locker room the the soap that just said soap and it was like in black letters on a white giant jar you'd squeeze it into your hand and you just feel like your skin like burning you're like That's i think I know. it's, it's working <laughs> and he's like head to toe so like you have to do your shampoo down your toes and everything's dry at the end of it <laughs> but so hopefully it's better than that stuff <laughs> dude i miss shane cook I was cool. Coach Cook, I was yeah, never, shout out Coach Cook because I was never I'm, on the wrestling team and like never had him as a coach, but he was a substitute in one of my health classes once, and like just funny the whole time, um, mm-hmm. but also very much like the Chuck Norris of our high school. Oh, one hundred percent, yeah. And he's uh, such a such a badass. Still, I don't know if you follow him on like social media. He's like in his yard, just cutting wood, shirtless, <laughs> looking like a badass and, and everything. I have I have that man to think. Yeah, for a lot of things. Just he was an, a fantastic coach, and definitely, if anyone knows him, yeah, he's a he's a great man and a, a really awesome coach. So maybe I'll have to get him on the podcast. Yeah, that'd be cool. I'll yeah, hear one hundred percent listen to that. 
<laughs> I think we'll get all the the north northwest suburbs of Chicago uh, yeah. people to to listen to that. But I don't. I know. remember when he when he subbed for our class. Um, there yeah. was one kid who had like crazy crazy hair, mm. and I remember Coach Cook being like, "I know you're not on the wrestling team, but we do two dollar Tuesdays, and I'll cut your hair." And there's two styles: short and shorter. The difference <laughs> is that shorter lasts two weeks longer. <laughs> Like that was like the one thing that stuck out to me and I thought it was hilarious. Was that the, there was a guy, I remember he had this crazy mohawk that he gelled like straight up. And I I swear it added like an extra foot or two to his height. No, it wasn't that guy, but I think I remember who you're talking about. Uh, Man, I I saw that guy. I'm like, and then there's like one day I saw where he didn't gel it straight up and he just like had it down. I'm like, whoa, (laughs) that's crazy. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Um, Okay, so back to back to jujitsu. You said you had this attendance um, competition, right? Yeah. Um, so that was January, and I was going like every day, sometimes twice or three times a day. Like, if it was a day that I had off work, but the academy was open, I would go to like three or four classes in one day and just like feel beat to crap. Yeah. But I was like, I want to win at least a gi. Um, and I was like in a close kind of back and forth with a few other people, um, mm-hmm. like totally friendly competition and everything. Yeah. Uh, and ended up getting the gift basket uh, oh, with, that's the, pretty sweet. with the arm bar soap and um, yeah. all kinds of cool stuff in it. Nice. Yeah, yeah. that's 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 awesome. Because I remember when I moved up to Minnesota, we didn't have any competition like that. But there were there were days. I think Wednesdays specifically, I would like there was four classes on Wednesday. There was the morning class, and then there was a combatives class in like the early afternoon and then immediately after there was an essentials class so for beginners and then the advanced class and my brother and i we would do the combatives essentials and advanced and like you said by the end of end of it you're just like so worn down but those days i i love those days like you feel accomplished (laughs) yeah for sure like you come home you drop your bag and you're like yep i did something today (laughs) Yeah, I, I did something today. <laughs> Tomorrow will be a new story, but exactly. today I did something. <laughs> yep. That's awesome. So how far, I guess, um, first of all, what's the kind of lineage of like, who's your professor? I guess give give a quick shout out to who your professor is. And do you know like his lineage in regards to, um, yeah, like who he l- learned from and everything? Yeah, so um so his name is Professor Juan Rodriguez down in Fort Lauderdale. Um, I actually haven't been doing jujitsu kind of an aside. I haven't been yeah. doing jujitsu since the pandemic uh, yeah. started just that because I actually moved from Fort Lauderdale like right like two weeks maybe before the world shut down. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I haven't done, I haven't been back to a jujitsu place since uh, yeah. other than visiting his, um, his academy this past weekend, actually when I was in South Florida. Um, but I didn't roll or anything. I watched very much wanting to roll, um, <laughs> yeah. but uh, cautiously sitting out. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he got his black belt, I believe, from his professor, Stan, uh, who got his from Henzo Gracie. Nice. Okay. Yeah. It's like twice removed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. That's really cool. And so how, so you started in December 2019. So yeah, you, un- you unfortunately didn't really get too, too far. Like what? Yeah. Like three, four months? Three months. Three months. Three yeah. months. Okay. Yeah. I think March 3rd was the last day I rolled last year. Cause I remember I actually met up with a buddy from Fort Lauderdale at the Henzo Gracie in Orlando while he was there. Yeah. Uh, and we rolled one last time there. And then I don't think I went back to a, to a jujitsu academy between then and like 
the pandemic's shutting stuff down. Yeah. Yeah. What is like, uh, from the three months, did you pick up something that was like, this is like a move that I really like or, um, got a few good guillotines on people. Uh, and I liked, I like those. I'm a big fan of like guillotines and rear naked chokes. Um, yeah. But, um, I think what I picked up more than like a move is early on in jujitsu, like, and everyone tells you not to do this, but when you're a spazzy white belt, you get excited. Mm-hmm. Early on, I was like, I was like, oh, I got to try to tap people out. And then like, I got to a point where I was like, I'm not going to tap people out who have been doing this for months and months and months, like longer than me or years longer than me. Yeah. Um, so then I started focusing just on like not getting submitted, like just mm. focusing on working on the escapes defense. and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and honestly, that just became a lot of fun. Like I... I was like, oh, I don't really care if I get caught in an arm bar now because I can practice getting out of it. And if I don't get out of it, like, whatever, we're in the academy and I'm, I'm learning. Yeah. Um, so once I kind of switched my mindset from, like, offense to defense as a white belt, uh, I think things kind of clicked for me a little bit more and I started having a little bit more fun with it. Yeah. Yeah, there's something to that because I think I was, like, the same way it, even throughout, like, the beginning of my blue belt, I really dove into become trying to become like untappable. Like that was like kind of like a goal I kind of set for myself. It's definitely not true. Like I'm <laughs> definitely tappable, but I like just was like, okay, just make someone's life a living hell. Like they're going to get frustrated because when you get someone who is like attacking you and they just can't do anything, eventually they open themselves up to, getting attacked and on top of that they get tired and it's that was like one thing from the the competitions that i've done i've always told myself like i might be out techniqued but i'm not gonna get beaten because i'm winded or because i'm just tired and exhausted so i really like to kind of have the idea and mentality of i'm just gonna wear this person out and make their life as much of a living hell as possible. And even though like they can still catch me, but they're going to be like, damn, that sucked. <laughs> like that was, I'm way more tired than I should be. Yeah. And that was like my idea. And now I'm, well, I say now it's been, like I said, six months since I've uh, actually trained, but I'm planning in like a month or two to get back into like just basic, like essential stuff, like not l- live goes. And I don't know, like the the technique starting to to click. I feel very comfortable with certain moves, and yeah, it, it's getting exciting. It, that's why I I literally got my purple belt, and then fifteen days later, tore my LCL. I was like, I guess at least I got the purple belt before right. I did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that would have so sucked. Fun. That would have sucked to be like right at the very edge of getting your purple belt and then injuring yourself and then having to get back to it. Right. <laughs> right. It was, yeah, I guess like that's the, the one silver lining there, but it's, uh, oh man, like it, cause like right when you get a belt, cause wait, are you, did you get your blue belt or no, no, I, you said three I mean, months? I, yeah. So I got, a, yeah. I got one stripe on my white belt. So I was going to say I don't have, three months I don't have too far to fall. <laughs> three months would have been real quick if you got yeah. your blue belt, like very impressive, but, but real quick. Um, it's like when, but even like with a, with a stripe and what's like when you get that promotion for like the next couple of weeks, you're like riding that high. I like noticed I'm like totally zoned in and like, I was just like ready to go. Like everybody I was like going against, I felt like I was just like 
having good roles and stuff. Um, and then, like I said, hurt myself. And now, so now I feel like I'm going to go back and basically be a white belt. I'm going to be getting submitted by blue belts left and right and be like, ah, I don't deserve this. <laughs> yeah. I keep reminding myself that if I'm totally honest with totally honest with myself, I really should take my stripe off and go back to being a no stripe white belt because I've gone a year now without doing any jujitsu. Yeah. Every it's... once in a while, I'll come up to like my dad while he's working and rear naked choke him and then he'll tap before it's actually tight. But that's how that's how I keep my rear naked choke technique. That's yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like nothing like an unsuspecting father to take the abuse of his child. Exactly. Uh, that's that's awesome. What I guess have you taken anything away from jujitsu? Not jujitsu related. I know it's only been like in three months, but and then the yeah. answer could be no. Yeah, no. I would say so. One thing is like. I guess this is this is exactly not an answer to your question because you asked about not jujitsu related, um, and this is like fairly jujitsu related. But mm-hmm. jujitsu does a really good job of like showing you that size isn't the only like determining factor. Like obviously, if you and I were both were both blue belts uh, of the same level and we knew the same exact techniques and everything, but if I was two hundred and fifty pounds bigger than you, like my size would for sure be an advantage. But like mm-hmm. like learning early on that you can get submitted by a 90 pound girl and be a 220 pound guy and like and you're totally helpless because this person knows more than you and knows how to use leverage and knows how to use kind of your own body weight against you um it made me realize that like your size and your strength isn't the only thing that's going to protect you like i remember before jujitsu when i was when i was like fully into crossfit uh i was like I was walking around with this kind of false confidence of like, Mm -hmm. oh, if someone tries to attack me, like, I'm strong, I'll be fine. Well, strength isn't going to help you if they actually know what they're doing. Um, But on the other hand, it also kind of made me realize like most of the people who start fights and pick fights aren't people who know what they're doing because like, and Jocko, I think, and Joe Rogan talk about this a lot, but when you know what violence is truly capable of, like when you've experienced it in a controlled environment like jujitsu, you don't want any part of it in an uncontrolled environment like the street. Yeah. It's terrifying. I I think that kind of showed me that like the people who will start problems generally are not the people who know what they're doing. Uh, But you shouldn't try to start problems with people who do know what they're doing because they'll fuck you up really quick. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A hundred percent. And that's the other thing is you don't know who knows anything. It's like one now having trained fighting and like I sometimes I take someone down and like it's again in a controlled environment, very soft mats. They know how to fall. They break fall. But in my mind, I'm like, if I did this to someone or if someone did this to me in the street and I just like, la- like some of these moves, if you, if you land one, you can put out your arm. If you don't know how to break fall, right. You put out your arm, you break your arm. That's like the least of the concern you land. I could throw someone and like, if they fall wrong, they fall on their head and like next thing they're dead. Like, I mean, there's some moves like you land wrong on the head. You can crack your neck. You can, and like that, yeah, like you said, it opens up your eyes to how, like, when you kind of go there in your mind, it, like, opens up your eyes, like, oh, I never want to do this to anybody. Yeah. I don't want yeah. this done to me. I never want to do this to anybody. But it's, like, it's nice to know how to do it. But, yeah. Uh, I don't in, know, man. A, it's, yeah. In, in a place like jujitsu, like, like you said, you've got mats. It's a controlled environment. Like, you can tap if you're mm-hmm. in pain, right? Yeah. But if you get into a fight in the street and someone arm bars you, they don't give a shit if you tap. Uh, 
they're, I mean, like, hopefully you're not getting into a fight in the street in the first place, but yeah. like shit gets real in the street. There's no mats. You can't just tap out. If you mm-hmm. get your head smashed against the curb, you got your head smashed against the curb and it's probably going to have some pretty bad consequences for you. Yeah. I always thought like if I ever got into a fight with someone and I realized like you can, you'll realize pretty quick if like they know jujitsu too. I'm like, <laughs> Oh, this could be fun actually. <laughs> like you like tap bump and then you're just like rolling in the streets and like it becomes like a friendly kind of thing. And I'm like, it's all simple like spider guard, something that's like just not would be very useful in a fight. But like, yeah, you pull in like some like weird like barambolo <laughs> roll into someone. Like I'm like, oh, that'd be kind of fun. But that's like the ideal is like you realize and then you both are kind of like, oh, this is fun. <laughs> like, you know, jujitsu too. And then. Um, but yeah, it's not going to be like that. And like I, I don't said, I've never like been that. in a fight. Don't plan on, on it. Um, and like, that's the thing I was listening. Uh, my buddy, he actually started a podcast. I'll shout out the Pohada podcast. It's a jujitsu podcast. Um, it's P O R R A D A podcast. Um, he trains at my gym and he like interviews the black belts and some of the higher belts at the gym. And, one of the things like one of the black belts was talking about he was a guy who like in college he was like an asshole and just like got in fights and stuff and he was this was when he was he was just a wrestler um but he didn't really train jujitsu much and he's like he's like now he's like one same thing like we said he's like i'm not gonna get in a fight he's like it's it's gonna just end up hurt someone's gonna get hurt or something or worse and he's like two he's like like i'm like 35 he's like if i get in a fight now at like a bar he's like my friends and family are gonna be like what are you doing <laughs> like you're 35 why are you still getting in fights at bars right and so he's like he's like yeah he's like i'll i'll be one to talk shit he's like i'll like if if i see something i'll like be like i'll talk shit be like no that's you're fucking stupid don't do that but at the end of the day when the guy's like if he's like well you want to take this outside he's, he'll be like no i really don't actually yeah I don't want to take this outside because I don't want to fight, but just don't do that. Don't be an asshole. <laughs> yeah. I think that's kind of what another thing jujitsu does is like, it reminds you that, not reminds you, it teaches you not to have an ego because you can't, you can't have a huge ego and do jujitsu. Like it just doesn't work because if you have a huge ego and you, you get butt hurt every time someone taps you, like you're going to get tapped a shit ton of times in the first couple yep. months you do jujitsu. You're probably going to get tapped a shit ton of times time. all the not, time. Not like, the first couple months, let me like tell you. Like 10 years down the road, you're still going to be getting tapped by a lot of yeah. people because like, <laughs> yeah, you're getting better, but black belts are getting to be more experienced black belts, you know? Exactly. Um, but it teaches you not to have this ego where like a lot of people, and I think a lot of the people that would agree to a street fight uh, are also people that like don't know what they're doing because yeah. like you agree to a street fight because you're at a bar and some guy is like challenging you and you think that your manhood is somehow at stake because this guy's like, Hey man, I'm going to fuck your girlfriend. Like your manhood's not really at stake and it could end disastrously for either you or this other person. So like it kind of taught me to rather than escalate situations, just walk away from them if you can, because Mm -hmm. like nine times out of 10 walking away from a situation is going to be a lot better for you and everyone else involved than escalating a situation and possibly making it worse. Yeah. Like I used, I used to be the kind of guy who was like, someone would cut me off on the road. I would speed up next to them and like flick them off. And I was, like, <laughs> I don't know, like maybe someone is like running to the hospital and needs to get there really quickly and yeah. cutting everyone off. Or maybe they're a crazy person and maybe they'll end up pulling a gun and shooting me because I flipped them off. Like I don't want to escalate a situation where I, I don't control the ultimate outcome. Yep. No, that's, that's so true. It's so, like, that's, 
the best thing. Like, luckily, again, I've never really been a person to fight. I I would talk my way out of things. I've never gotten into a fight. I've people who have wanted to do stuff. I've just been like, no, like we'll, we'll stop this. And so, and but this jujitsu has taught me even more like why to do that, and it just makes you comfortable in those situations just to be calm. Like you can just be like, okay, like. Because now it's like, even in those like situations, I was able to talk my way out of it. It's like, I was so nervous and so tensed up. I'm like, I don't want to do this. And like, now it's like, okay, granted again, I haven't, I don't even get myself in those situations anymore. But I feel like if I would, I would be like, no, we're not going to do this. We're, it's just, this is just silly. We're not going to do this. So if you want to go fight, go elsewhere. Because this is, yeah. Like you said, the, the idea like that you need to defend it's like insecurity if you're yeah. thinking like this drunk asshole's coming up to you talking shit like wanting to fight and then you concede and actually fight. It's like that's just insecurity in yourself, really. Yeah, exactly. Like, be secure. Say say no and just move on with life. Cause yeah, yeah. I mean, a totally different situation too. Like if someone actually physically attacks you and like at that Very point different. you you go straight into a situation that you didn't really have. Yeah. yeah. You didn't have a choice to walk away from the situation because it happened upon you. Um, and yeah, at that point you have to go into self-defense. But again, like going back to jujitsu, I think that's one of the beautiful things about it is that like striking, I think, I don't necessarily think it's easy to learn, but I think it's a lot easier to learn than fighting on the ground. And I think that when you are proficient at fighting at the ground and you can control things, you can end a fight without having to actually like really, really hurt the person. Yeah. Like you see a bunch of those videos of guys like, just stopping obnoxious drunk people at re- restaurants who are like harassing waitresses and stuff just by yeah. mounting them and holding them down until, and literally like, yeah, like, like sitting on their hands and so, yeah, stop. and the person doesn't know what to do, but like, you're not smashing them in the face. Like I remember Jocko was talking about it on a podcast, I believe with Joe Rogan, uh, they were talking about like police reforms and how a lot of mm. states are like passing those bans on chokeholds. Yeah. And he's like, well, you know, the thing about like about chokeholds that makes them great is that you can control someone. And if you can't control them with a chokehold, you know what you have to do? You got to hit them in the head. And sometimes you got to hit them in the head a few times and that can cause a lot of damage. Um, So I think it's one of those things where like, and again, it has to be like a fine line. Like I think there's, I'm sure there are a lot of police officers who are not properly trained in, in chokeholds and could hurt someone. Uh, But I think that if, if people are properly trained in a method that allows you to control a situation without causing serious injury, then that would be preferable in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I've always said that a, a properly trained, or someone who knows how to do a proper chokehold, that's like the most humane way of calming a situation of like, like a violent situation is to choke someone out. They're going to pass out, wake up 10 seconds later, have no idea what just happened, be confused. And by that point, if it's like self-defense, you're gone. Like you can just walk away, run away, whatever. Right. But there's those terrible situations where someone doesn't know they're choking them for far too long. Cause again, if you have a proper choke seven seconds, seven to 10 seconds later, that person is, is knocked out. Like they're, they're done. And so like, again, you can release, you'll feel their body go limp. You can release, walk away. Now you hold it for 30 seconds for 40 seconds for a minute brain damage, death, whatever that stuff starts to happen. Again, that's improper training. Like, you know, if you know that seven to 10 seconds, I mean, whether it's like the heat of the moment, maybe you go 15 seconds, you're still fine. Like you need to like really be 
holding a person for too long to for it to be damaging but like you said when if you're i i don't like that idea of banning those chokeholds because it's like no let's not ban them like they're they have their place yeah but they need to be carefully just, executed and properly trained exactly they have there's no training sure. behind it yeah. yeah yeah they have their place but exactly just focus on the training teach people how to do this because like you said if not a one punch to the head can just annihilate someone like it's i don't know like i'm again that's like a it's a touchy subject these days but i think that's that's important for people to kind of understand yeah about that um yeah so sorry that was just uh i had i felt like i had something else with the on the jujitsu subject um if you don't i have a quick uh yeah kind of aside like just on what we were talking about with the like self-defense and police situations. Yeah. So outside of police, but like in a, in a self-defense situation, like if someone attacks you and you need to defend yourself, you of course do whatever you need to do to defend yourself. And, uh, as an aside, like I'm a person who supports the second amendment and supports people concealed carrying for self-defense, but like I'd much rather not have to do that. So if you can, if you can mount someone and keep them down until they calm the hell down or until a cop comes and, and deals with them, uh, then you don't have to deal with all the legal nonsense because quite frankly, like you're going to get sued. If you beat the crap out of someone in the street, um, you break someone's face and they will sue you. But like, if you just control them on the ground, you didn't really hurt them. You didn't do anything to them. You just like made them late for the next person that they're going to harass. Uh, then no harm, no foul. And you don't get sued and you don't have to deal with that nonsense. Yeah. And the other thing too, best self-defense, just run like, yeah. If you can run three to five miles at a good pace, no one's going to, like, if they chase you down at three to five miles later, yeah. you they're probably going to be winded. Yeah. And then at that point, it's going to be a little easier. If you've trained that, eh, it's going to be easier for you to just control the situation. And maybe you can talk it out and be like, okay, you're tired. What's up? Yeah. <laughs> but no one's going to chase you for three to five miles. So Right. And again, it comes, the, down to, it comes down to ego, right? Because, like, a mm-hmm. lot of people are probably like, oh, I don't want to run from a situation. Like... If someone wants to fight me, I'm going to fight. No, like, what are you trying to prove to strangers on the street? Like, just yeah, right? get the hell out and, and protect your livelihood and your longevity because yeah. you don't want to be in a fight. No, no. I never want to be in a fight. And like I said, I will gladly run away. <laughs> I'll be the first to admit it. I'll run. I don't care. I care more about my health and my life than I do about my ego. I mean, I'm sure we've both seen some UFC fights that we thought, like, shit, if that happened in the street, that person oh would my- be dead. God, yeah. Like when, was, when Jorge Masvidal knocked out uh, Ben Askren in five seconds with his flying knee and then yeah, the went knee. down with the super necessary punches yeah. before the ref threw him off. Like if the ref hadn't thrown him off, he would have killed him. Yeah. On the street, like Ben Askren's dead. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there was just that fight, I feel like over the weekend, um, where the guy threw the illegal knee. I don't know if you saw oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jan, I think. I heard about is, it. I didn't see it. Uh, yeah, so... I didn't see. I, well, I I saw the highlights afterwards. This guy was controlling the fight, and the again, I forget who. I think Jan is the name of the guy who threw the illegal knee. But basically, the guy was down one knee, and so a, a rule in the UFC is if you're down on the ground, like with like one knee on the ground, you can like get struck, but you can't like the one rule is you can't get kneed in the face. Like that's like pretty much like a flat out rule. And the guy 
kneed him like directly in the face when he yeah. was like kneeling on the ground. Right. So immediately they stopped the fight, disqualified. The guy wins the belt. But it was like I thought about that too because like he got kneed in the face and like was like wh- like on the ground like you could just see like the pain that he was in and like people were like oh he was just selling it and I'm like are you serious you think this man is selling getting knee like just take think about what you're saying like you just got kneed in the face by a trained fighter yeah. and you think that he's like pretending to be hurt like. No, if you got kneed in the face by by not a trained fighter, you would be also on the ground <laughs> in pain, but let alone a trained fighter. <laughs> right. A lot of people I think, yeah. would be on the ground in pain getting hit in the face with like a really firm pillow. Um, <laughs> thinking that, so thinking that like a knee is, is the guy acting or, or selling it uh, right. is a little too far. That's crazy. I know. I thought that was super silly when I started seeing people saying that. Yeah. Um, and like I... I kind of wonder how the other guy feels because, like, Jan was disqualified for that knee, right? Yeah. So, like, the other guy by default kind of won, but, like, he won yeah, because the other guy did a shitty thing. And he was losing. And so, Jan should have won that fight. Like, he was controlling the fight the whole time. Um, and just based on the interviews, like, the guy was not happy that he won. He was like, I mean, he's like, yeah, I won. Like, that was a shitty move, but, like, yeah. I don't know. I should have. I should have lost, really. He knew it. And like, I'm like, good for him. I mean, for like being, again, letting go of that ego and just being like, I, I lost that fight. Like, I yes, I have the belt, but at the end of the day, that was, I lost that fight. Yeah. So, well, Eitan, I want to talk about the woodworking that you, that you, you've got going. I know um, that's like a big project that, and actually one of the reasons I really wanted to talk with you. And so, I'm I'm excited because one I think there's like you are like one of three people that I know who do woodworking. One being my grandpa, and the other one being a black belt at the the gym I train at. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah. So I guess how did again like I've kind of asked with most things. How did you start with woodworking? Um, so it's interesting. I don't really have like a set, like this is when I started woodworking and this is like how I got into it. Um, I've always kind of like growing up, my dad and I were always into crafts. Like my dad got really into making stuff out of clay and like he would make all these little, like his big thing was he'd make these chimpanzees, but like super detailed looking chimpanzees, but they were all wearing like really colorful suits and playing musical instruments. Cause he's also like very musically inclined. So on our piano at home, he used to have these like clay chimps that he made with with musical instruments that he'd get at like craft stores um and like we just ended up kind of picking up more and more like crafty hobbies and one thing that we picked up when i was in like middle school was wood burning so you take like a pen with like a little metal tip on it and you make a cool design of what on wood yeah um and so i got into that and like did that on and off for a little bit since middle school and like i i had like a friend who wanted his like DJ logo at the time, uh, wood burn. So I made that, but like nothing crazy, uh, crazy serious or like actual woodworking, more just pyrography, um, wood burning. Uh, honestly, like pandemic boredom, like really got us into more serious woodworking. Um, like we were, my dad and I were looking for something to do. I had just moved in with my parents, uh, not pandemic related, just good timing. Um, and we started making these things called sayas, like these knife covers for chef's knives. Okay. 
Um, so it's basically like a wooden sleeve that you put your knife blade into just to protect it. Like um, a sheath, kind of? Yeah, yeah, pretty okay. much. So we made those from like two pieces of wood that we'd glued together and like we had a router so we would cut out the actual mm. shape and like thickness of the knife blade so it was perfectly fitted. Um, and then at the end I would, would burn them to, to look nice and like finish them and everything. So we got into it that way, um, kind of small scale and then uh, slowly like we'd always talked about how cool it would be to have a garage workshop and then we were like, oh, we can build a garage workshop. So hey, Aitan, or Aitan, sorry, real quick, can you like back up the sound? There you go. Better? Yeah. Okay, sweet. Sorry. Yeah, I don't know if like you were like covering the microphone or something, uh, but it was like getting a little muffly for a second. So yeah, sorry. Sorry, sorry go on. Very good. Um, so yeah, my dad and I just kind of started buying more like power tools and building out our garage workshop here in uh, my parents' house in Florida. Um, and uh, started making like some cutting boards. Yeah. So I'm actually like very new into woodworking altogether. Like the thing I've probably made the most at this point is cutting boards and I haven't even made all that many. Um, but they've, I've sold a few to a few people like custom order ones, um, which is pretty awesome. And yeah, looking forward to seeing kind of where it goes. I want to get into some furniture building, but haven't really had too much of a chance other than like woodshop furniture. Um, yeah. which we've built some cool woodshop furniture. Like my, my dad had this really cool idea for a workbench, um, like table that could fold up and we could put it next to the wall so that we could still park cars inside the garage. Um, mm. so he kind of like engineered the, the actual mechanism of folding the table because it also needs to be like pretty heavy and sturdy so that you can actually work on it. Um, okay. so we made a pretty sweet, uh, foldable table. We haven't really folded it up much because we've just kind of kept it out and kept working on it. But, um, yeah, I don't know if that really answers your question of like how I got into it. It wasn't too specific, but <laughs> no, that, no, that's really just cool. Kind of picking so, up projects. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like, um, and I'm sorry, maybe you, maybe you did say this. Your has your dad done this a lot? When like was that something that he you said he did like with the clay stuff, but then it morphed into the wood stuff more in the pandemic, right? Yeah, yeah. It's okay. not really like. I mean, he didn't really do the clay stuff in the last several years, to be honest. Um, okay. He made, like, my sister's wedding cake toppers um, out mm, of clay. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so, those were really cool. Like, it's it's my sister and my brother-in-law, like, in their wedding clothes on skis because they're really into skiing. Nice. Um, and that went on their, on their wedding cake, which is pretty sweet. But um, my dad and I are, like, very similar in that when we get into something, we, like, go really into it. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, have not been able to get him really into jujitsu. Although I've tried. <laughs> yeah, um, like you said, there's no maybe, Yeah, maybe choking limit. him every day is not a, a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that won't sell him. Maybe I'll let him like armbar me or something. But um, yeah, we both just kind of like dove into it. We didn't really know what we were doing. Like YouTube is very much still our teacher. Um, nice. There's a lot of like really great makers and creators on YouTube that, uh, that make some really great content on like how to actually do stuff. Um, kind of the cool thing about the uh the internet in general like if you want to get into something you it's not that hard like it's hard to right. it's hard to get really good at something but it's not that hard to get really into something because yeah you yeah, can find so many resources about it now without leaving your house so many so many it's um it's like something my brother always says he's like he always like harps about is is just being like trying to figure it out yourself first and then after like a certain whatever that number of time is then looking and, and reaching out to help. And it's like 
nowadays, literally, like you said, you just Google search and then there's, there's a YouTube video for it. Like and in seconds. In seconds, in, in literal seconds. And, and it's, it can get you started with so many things. I mean, there's so many things that I can think of in my life that I have the internet to thank for. Cause like even in starting a podcast, like I was like, no idea how to start this thing. And then, I mean, I think it's going decently well, but at least I'm able to make a format that is something that <laughs> right. something can, that someone can listen to. And it's fun to see it pop up on the, I, I still sometimes find it cool where I can like, Oh, if I actually go on the Apple podcast on Spotify, yeah. I'm there. That's pretty yeah. cool. But that's gotta be and, cool that, and again, that goes back to, I learned a lot via YouTube. So it's cool that something like woodworking I mean, usually I feel like I think of like that. It's like you need a you need a like a teacher, and you need to be like an apprentice for like something like that. Or it's like, no, nah, you guys were just like, let's try this out. Let's yeah. let's do it. And so, where did you guys get like the wood? Like, what was was how did that? How did you manage around that? Um, I mean, it's it depends on like the projects that we're doing. So, cutting boards, you have to use hardwoods, um, things like maple, cherry, walnut. Um, and there's a hardwood store not too far from us here uh, in Florida. Um, it's in a town called Ormond Beach. Uh, it's a place called Mainstream Hardwoods. And so you go there and it's like, it's like a not too big of a shop with just like a ton of like really long boards. Um, and you can pick from those. And then like for, for stuff like wood shop furniture, we just kind of use Home Depot and Lowe's um, yeah. lumber because you don't need to use super nice, super expensive materials for that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's cool. So how do you make like just kind of briefly talk about like the actual formation of a cutting board? Because I've seen some that look like they're almost like glued to get like different pieces of wood glued together. And I don't know. I'm like, I don't know if that's actually how it works, but just based on the different colors and everything, that's how I think it is. So how like, do you, and do you have like a certain style that you like to do? Yeah. Um, so it's exactly how you actually described it. Um, it's different pieces of glue of wood. I'm sorry, glued together. Nice. Um, yeah. And basically, what you do is like, let's say I want to make a board that's um, the last two boards I made were maple and black cherry, so, or black walnut. I'm sorry. So let's just use those as an, as an example. I'd cut up the pieces to the thickness that I want. Um, I'd put them on these like really strong clamps that I have that are like 24 inch long uh, pipes with like these clamp fixtures, yep. and um, yeah, glue up the boards really well, and then you clamp them super tight till the till the glue like starts squeezing out on the edges. Mm-hmm. Um, leave it overnight, and then that's kind of your first step. And then from there, um, you'd want to flatten it. So I have a machine called a planer, which a lot of people think uh, makes wood flat, but really what it does is makes wood parallel. So like if you mm-hmm. had a if you had a crooked piece of wood and you ran it through the planer, it's just going to make it like just as crooked on the second side. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it like shaves wood off the top of the board. So you have to have at least one flat side. Yeah. Um, so you try to glue up your board in a way that you have the bottom side totally flat. And then the top, you might have some variations, run it through the planer, um, flatten it. And then from there, I kind of go into the customization parts. So like um, I'll make a beveled edge or a rounded edge, depending on what the person wants. Uh, I'll laser engrave like a name or a logo or something into it. Um, and then I will put like an, a mineral oil and beeswax mix, like a few coats mm-hmm. of that, uh, to finish it in like a food safe way. 
and then I put these like little rubber feet on the bottom, uh, and then it's pretty much ready to go. I mean that that's like boiled down to a few seconds. That's yeah. honestly like several hours of work. I bet, um, yeah. But uh, as I as I get more efficient and make more boards, hopefully it'll become a a faster, smoother process for me. Yeah, uh, that's that's uh, it's really cool, and it's, you make some beautiful stuff. Because like I said, I've I've seen some of the um stuff on your instagram and it's a uh, it's really cool it reminds me do you know the show i've been <laughs> super into the show uh forged in fire do you know that no. that show is i think uh, i've heard on, of that too actually it's on netflix that. um it's it's not woodworking but it's basically these guys make like knives and swords oh uh, and yeah it's it's like blacksmithing yeah and it's just it's kind of cool like after watching the one season that they have on Netflix and getting and just like binge watching it. Cause it's like my, my mindless show that I turn on, like when I feel like not doing anything right. and it's like, oh, I've kind of picked up like the general idea. Like you said, they boil down the whole process into a few seconds, a few minutes. And it's like, I kind of understand the idea of how like, it's cool. Cause you see them take like these chain links or you see like they, they have like a car and they have to like, strip the car, take the steel from it, and then make a sword out of it. And it's like, whoa, okay. So you kind of see it from start to finish, and you kind of get that idea, like you said, the boiled down version of what does it take to make a sword. And so it's kind of like what you were just describing, like the you start with this piece of wood, how do you do it in the boiled down version? And then you just broke it down. So that's... That's really cool. Yeah, I, I think you might find that show interesting just for the sheer fact of like watching people build something. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I've always found metalwork really cool. I don't know anything about it, but it looks <laughs> yeah. really impressive. But yeah. I mean, like, you, like you mentioned, like just watching it, you kind of get a gist for it and all good roads lead to jujitsu, right? It's <laughs> it's a similar concept. Like you don't necessarily learn jujitsu just by watching someone uh, armbar somebody. Mm-hmm. But if you watch somebody armbar somebody enough times, you start to understand like, okay, these are kind of the general steps of how to armbar somebody. And then you try it and then you fail it a few times and then mm-hmm. your professor will like point out what you could do better. Um, so it's all like a learning process, but it starts from somewhere of like seeing it and trying it yourself. Um, which I think, sorry to, to switch topics again and go back to jujitsu, but um, I know you and I could talk for a long time about that. Yeah. But um I think that's kind of what jujitsu teaches you too, is like always be a student and mm-hmm. like always be learning stuff. There's never like an end point. Like, I don't think there's ever going to be a point where I'm like, all right, I've learned everything there is to know about woodworking. Like I know how to make every single thing out of wood. It's just impossible. Like you just, you get to a point where you get really good at making cutting boards and then you're like, okay, I've, I've gotten this, but maybe I should do something else. Maybe I should make a dining room table. Uh, maybe I should make some kitchen cabinets and like, there's always room for growth just like in jujitsu or with any martial art or any, like any discipline that you can really get into. Um, unless you're always a student, you're not going to get that far in it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's a great, a great point. Cause it's funny. I listened to the black belts talk about receiving their black belt. Cause that's like what people think is like the epitome of martial arts. You get your black belt and whatever, whatever art that is. And they're like a lot of the guys are like i got my blood i was like terrified because for me it's like oh i'm supposed to know everything now right i know nothing like yeah i get 
things. Like, I understand, like, what everything's supposed to But, like, I don't know everything. Like, and they're, like, like you talk to these guys and they're, like, starting to panic. They're, like, like you kind of go through that imposter syndrome where it's, like, I'm, I'm not supposed to be a black belt right now. Like, this is definitely not the case. And, and that's just because, like you said, like, I've talked to enough of them now and, like, heard them speak enough about it where it's, like, no, black belt's just, like, the beginning of it like where it's like the learning process is like as like a white belt you are kind of learning it's like if you learn a language or something it's like you're learning words or like how to pronounce like a-e-i-o-u and like stuff like that then like a blue belt you're actually fully kind of understand some words and vocabulary and you can form sentences purple belts like now you can form longer sentences paragraphs brown belt you can like write like a book almost like you can and then black belt you can take those words and make them into like poetry and like really make them beautiful and then it's like there it's like the fine tuning of the words so it's like yeah you know an arm bar but all of a sudden you like turn the wrist this way versus like this way you pull it just like to this side versus this side you just like the little minutia of the of the move and it's the same thing i think you again you compare it with everything jiu-jitsu for us is such an easy it's such a clear like example of life because it's ha- it's like happening in real time and there's like real results right there and then and you get like real progression points and then in other things in life you don't always get that yeah. even though there are quote unquote belts in woodworking so it's like right now you maybe just started it maybe you're progressing to like towards a blue belt or like i don't i don't know where you're at like maybe a purple belt even but it's like you kind of like have those but like you don't actually get a distinctive belt whereas like jiu-jitsu you kind of do have those distinctive markers yeah and i mean it's also like just outside of specific belts uh or belt colors i should say like in jiu-jitsu um, when you're a white belt, you're kind of, I mean, you're, you're learning everything. And you also, if, if something goes wrong, like let's say you're rolling with a higher belt or something, or you're rolling with a two stripe white belt and you're a zero stripe white belt. And like you try to, to take the guys back and then like a little tiny thing goes wrong and you feel the guy getting into a better position and you're like, Oh crap, what am I going to do? And you start panicking. I'm kind of at a similar stage in woodworking where like if something happens while I'm making a cutting board, right? Like if, if, I recently had a board that I made that I glued it up. It was great. It was ready to like, it had to be cut into a circle uh, and personalized and stuff. And then the wood like warped after being glued up and my board was like bent like this. And I was like, crap, what do I do? So I had to like step back and pause. And I asked a few friends who I know who are like also woodworkers uh, what they would do. Um, But like, once you get to that brown belt, black belt of jujitsu, let's say, something goes wrong or like you you miss a point on your uh submission that would have like been the difference maker between submitting someone or not submitting them but you recognize what happened like you're and you can be more improvisational with it and the same is true in woodworking where if i'm making a cutting board 10 years from now hopefully i'll be making them in my sleep right and i if i have an issue i can deal with it right away and not have to like stop and google it um so it's one of those things where like Patience and repetition will get you further along the journey, but you have to stick with it. Yep. Yeah. Just the 
the whole concept of showing up. You show up every single day, even on the days you feel like shit, and at least you're there. It's like, that's that's just the idea. Like, I mean, again, just take that to anything in life. You, you show up and you're there. You're doing a better job than those who are not. Yeah. And like, I, again, I don't, I don't like to compare to other people, but like even compared to yourself, it's like, you're doing better than you did yesterday. If you just sat on the couch, you're doing better than you would have been doing if you were just sitting on the couch right now. So just, if you're constantly showing up, even if you pick up like one little thing that day, it's like, okay, well, I picked up one little thing. And even like in this time of, of an injury for me, I've been showing up to class and just watching and I pick up stuff too. It's like, again, I, you're not going to, I'm not going to pick up everything because there's a hundred percent difference between watching and doing like, that's when you start to make the true progression, but I'm doing something where like in my mind, then I can watch someone and then I can replay it and and picture myself. Like, what's this going to feel like? Like, and I have enough experience where it's like, I know what that position feels like. So what's this going to feel like if I grab here and pull here and do this? And yeah, and then you start to do like that sort of work. So that's cool, dude. I think that's a big part of it too is like once you find something that you love doing and you Mm -hmm. enjoy, then it makes doing it like regularly a lot easier and it makes Mm -hmm. it more rewarding too. Like if someone, if someone had absolutely no interest in doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu and had no interest in ever tapping someone or getting a belt or whatever, you're like you're never going to get them to want to go to jujitsu. Oh, yeah. uh, but at the same time, then when they think like, oh, I don't want to go to jujitsu today and they don't go, they don't feel that bad about it. Mm-hmm. But like you and I really enjoy jujitsu and really enjoy what we get out of it. So if we had a day when like, oh, I really don't feel like going to jujitsu. I am feeling beat up. Like I'm sore from the last couple of days. But then you go, you feel so much better right afterwards. Yep. But then on the days when I feel like that and then I don't go do what I didn't want to do, then I regret it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, that does make sense. Exactly. You got to have that. Find. I think the story right there is find something that you're interested in and pursue it. Whether it's pursuing it once a week, once a day, once a month, like whatever you you can physically do, pursue it and take that time and and get better at it. And that's. I mean, that's what I've just been trying to do with life. Is just like I see something that I like see what happens just kind of go go at it not knowing where it's going to take me and like i had no idea i was going to start a tea podcast and here i am i guess i don't know how much tea we've really talked about here but and it's but like yeah i i started this tea thing a year and a half ago and here i am having a podcast and so it's just like you don't know where life's going to take you so just find the stuff that brings you joy, pursue it wholeheartedly and, and own it. And like my dad always said, he's like, I don't really care what you do in life. Just be the best at, and to try your hardest at whatever you're going to do. Right. And that's, I've like kind of always thought about that. I'm like, that's, that's awesome. Like that's a, that's just a great message to, to live by yeah. and everything. So what's, I guess, what's like, on the horizon with this woodworking stuff what's on the horizon well i'm going to be spending like a month and a half in illinois where i don't have my wood shop so i'm going to be taking Mm -hmm. a little bit of a hiatus from making stuff but uh before i head up there i'm making a few more cutting boards um for people up there 
And um, I really don't know. I don't have specific plans. I'd, I'd like to eventually, um, I think I'd like to give South Florida another shot, but that also means moving out of my parents' house where the woodshop is, mm-hmm. uh, which makes <laughs> things kind of kind of tough because it's like a four-hour drive away. Um, but honestly, I'd, I'd love getting into like making furniture. Um, I've had a few people ask me if I would make them like a dining room table one day. Um, mm. so I'm really just kind of open to any possibilities and any, any projects that come down the way. Um, if I can make it into a, a sustainable business, that would be awesome. Yeah. Um, if it continues being a hobby that I just happen to like sell a few pieces of here and there, then I'm happy with that too, because honestly, if it covers the cost of materials and I just enjoy the process, then, then that's enough for me. That's awesome. That's a, yeah, that's, that's another part of all that is pursuing something that brings you joy even if even if the money's not there and like that's that's cool because you're not there for the money and if it comes and that's the thing is i think it'll come <laughs> because if people will see the passion and the hard work that you're putting into your pieces and just the more you get into it i the more energy you put into something the the greater it expands like it gives it more potential to to grow and to expand. And so if it's something that you keep pursuing and it sounds like you're very passionate about it, then I, I don't know. It's exciting. It's exciting to see, see what happens. Cause, and oh man, it's just like the world of possibilities you have with woodworking. I think about that. Cause like I said, the, the black belt who does woodworking, um, he is into furniture. I'll maybe have to send you his, uh, his site just so you can, you can check out what he's got, but it's like, it's, it's so beautiful, like so cool. And I don't know, it's just, he sometimes posts videos of him doing, and it seems so relaxing. Like he posts videos of him, like shaving down and all of his equipment looks, I don't know if it is like all just kind of like what it has always been, or if there's like more updated technology, but it seems just so like relaxed. Like when he's like shaving the wood down and like getting the details into it. And it's like, wow. And then, like, he's posted the final product and it's gorgeous. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's also just, like, a really satisfying feeling, like, looking at something that you made and mm-hmm. thinking, like, wow, my hands made that. Um, like, in, in college, I worked in a kitchen for, for three years and got really into cooking. Um, I still like cooking not as much, uh, perhaps, as during college. But, yeah. um, like, when you, when you cook something, it's a similar feeling. Like, if I spend all day smoking a brisket on my smoker and then I take it out and I try it, I'm like, oh, my God, this, like all my hard work and effort is so worth it at the end of the day when I get to bite into this amazingly mm-hmm. juicy and soft brisket uh, mm-hmm. that I created. And it's like, it's a very satisfying feeling uh, to be involved in your own food or to be involved in your own um, anything really. Like it's a lot, I think it's a lot more satisfying to to make yourself something than to buy yourself something. Um, but that's also not necessarily the experience or opinion of other people. So people who don't like making stuff, that's the beauty of this, of this world we live in, or at least this country that we live in is you can do what makes you happy and you don't have to make, you don't have to do stuff that makes other people happy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The, the talk of, uh, like cooking for yourself is like, I think of something that doesn't require much work at all is like a slow cooker. And yet it's like, I think the buildup because your entire house just starts to smell. And because like, sometimes I work from home and it's like, just, all day it's sitting in the corner and I smell it and I'm like, Oh, I just know I get to, I get to enjoy that. And like, 
I caught down the minutes, like six hours and 50 minutes and then four hours and 15 minutes. And, and it, yeah, like you said, it just tastes that much better. Just like knowing, I don't know. There's, there's, to me, I agree with you. There's something to it when you cook something for yourself or grow something for yourself. That's why I'm really excited. The weather's starting to change. I actually have to kind of start thinking about this. There's a, a garden out front of, uh, of my house. So I get to get to plant something and I don't know what I'm going to do yet. There's a, it's a, it's a pretty good size. So it's definitely enough to feed, to, to give me enough vegetables like over, over the summer and fall to, to feed me and maybe my roommate. So I'm excited. I'm excited. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. We have neighbors down the street here who are from, um, from Connecticut and they always tell us about how like where they're from in Connecticut, everyone was like everyone had their kind of thing. So like this couple had uh, a big fruit and vegetable garden in their backyard. And then another couple, like the wife makes insane, like peach pies and another Mm. family like grows all the peaches for the neighborhood. And like they all share from each other's gardens and stuff. Like people would have enough peaches to share with the whole neighborhood to make a peach pie for everyone in the neighborhood. Uh, And then they'd like can a bunch of stuff, which like, that sounds awesome to me. Awesome to me because we're, we're blessed to live in a place where we can go to the grocery store to buy um, fruits and vegetables whenever we want, but mm-hmm. why not grow it if you can? Because then you like you have that connection with your food that runs a lot deeper than just going to the grocery store. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I I completely agree. It was something that was a quarantine project um, that when I was living at home for three months, yeah. I got to do with my brother and my dad. We we built a garden in the back of my parents' house, and it's just something to one just literally building the garden was just so much fun to do and a lot of hard work and I love yard work like that is like something I I like really genuinely I just remember it's something that my dad he's always loved doing and so he always like had us doing it when we were growing up and just just a lot of fun just being out in the sun it's like a different kind of tired at the end of the day your hands are all calloused up and just you feel good yeah. um so it was nice to kind of get back to that and then at the end of it to plant and watch the things grow. And like at that point we plant, I remember I planted everything and then I came back to Minneapolis to start cause things were starting to kind of get back for work to me. So I was starting to go back into customers. And so it'd be nice. Like every month when I'd go back home, I get to see like for me, for my parents and everything, they're like, Oh yeah. Like things have grown. And I'm like, things have grown huge. Like, cause I've, I've been separated for a month. Right. I'm like, last I saw it, it was a little baby. <laughs> and I guess it's a giant thing now. Like there's actually fruit on that one. Like this is amazing. So what kind of really, stuff do you guys plant? Oh man, we got, we actually had a lot. Um, we had cabbage, which took off. Like that was weird. Like I, I don't know why, I don't know why I thought it was weird, but I was like, Oh, I wasn't expecting the cabbage to get this huge. Right. Um, but we had cabbage, strawberries, raspberry, I think another type of berry might've been raspberry or blackberry. Um, and sweet potatoes, tomato, different kinds of tomatoes, uh, garlic, onions, um, uh, what else, what else, zucchini, oh my gosh, we had so many zucchini, like, way too many, (laughs) my parents were like, we're, we're figuring out ways, like, every time we, like, bake, we just throw zucchini into it, (laughs) every time we, like, cook anything, it's just throw zucchini into it, it got a little ridiculous, um, 
Man, I'm, I'm missing. There was probably like 15 different fruits and vegetables that we had. So, and I'm, oh, Brussels sprouts, broccoli. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was a lot of good stuff. And yeah, so it was, it was nice because I got to take some home. We made like kimchi out of the cabbage and yeah, yeah it was pretty awesome. One of the other things I saw that you've been doing and I've and I wanted to ask you about was you've been doing a mile run a day. Yeah. What's up with that? <laughs> um so I have long had like a love-hate relationship with running. Um mm-hmm. going back to like my middle school and high school days when I was totally out of shape like right after I stopped doing karate I like wasn't doing anything physical. My like middle school mile times were like 16 minutes and <laughs> I was mostly you, walking them. Um, and like the, our, my middle school teachers were like, they wouldn't openly make fun of me, but I knew that like, <laughs> in their head, they were like, what's this kid doing with this yeah. minute mile? Um, so again, fast forward to CrossFit, I kind of got into fitness more and like, um, started to challenge myself more and like, rather than shying away from running, I got more into it. Um, and right around like sophomore year, someone from, uh, from U of I offered to run a half marathon with me. And I was like, the first race I would have ever run. I was like, that's insane. That's a crazy start. Um, and kind of got into it, ran a few half marathons. Um, and like I've had a love hate relationship with it since, but the mile specific thing that you said, the mile a day, um, is a challenge with CrossFit people from elite athletic development, the gym that I mentioned in Illinois. So that's um, it, cause I was like EAD, I keep seeing, and I was yeah. like, it's your name, is, is it something with your name? I no, was like, oh, where I probably is this going? Put a little, I probably should have <laughs> put a little like explainer thing on the, on the first of the year, but then I realized like past the first of the year, nobody will know what's going on. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't, I don't think I saw it the first of the year. It's just been something I've seen recently. So yeah, basically the gym has uh, a few people who are like really big runners and a lot of them will like run a mile right after uh, doing a CrossFit workout, like just kind of. Um, cool everything down and, and get blood flowing again. Yeah. Um, so they came up with this challenge like in December of let's go and see who like who can run every single day of 2021, one mile a day. Yeah. Um, and like the rules are basically just you can't, if, if you can run, you should run. Like if you can't run, then you can walk and it counts. Um, and it can't be like a part of a CrossFit workout. So like there's CrossFit workouts that have running in them. You can't count yeah. that as your, as your daily mile. Um, and because it worked out kind of well with like the, the pandemic and everything and me being here in Florida, um, I was like, all right, well, at least like on the days <laughs> when I'm not, weather, yeah. yeah, on the days when I'm not doing some kind of um, like actual serious workout, at least I will have accomplished one mile. Like at least like it, it's one thing that um, I can say that I did that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got into it much to the surprise of a lot of people at EAD who know that I'm not at all a cardio person um, <laughs> and not a runner. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I've just been... Like the, the whole posting on Instagram thing is more for myself than for anything else because keep yourself accountable. Um, yeah, like nobody else in, in the challenge is doing it. There, mm-hmm. There's a Facebook group where people sometimes post their their run pictures, mm-hmm. um, but I just figured it would be like a fun thing to look back on. Like I made an Instagram highlight thing uh, so that every day I can put it in the highlight, and then at the end of the year I can look back at 365 days of running. Hopefully, if I make it. I was like, have you? Are you good so far? Hundred percent. Uh, yep. Today's day. What is it? Today's day the 70. 11th. Yeah. Oh, day 70? Day 70. It got Did you do it already? Harder to, no. Still you haven't done it today? You're last going... night Last night I ran like 20 minutes before midnight. That was my daily <laughs> oh, run yesterday. Geez. 
That's crazy. I was in yeah. bed. <laughs> so I'm, I'm yeah. in bed promptly by like 9 p.m., 10 p.m. at the latest. <laughs> That's like the beautiful thing about working from home is I don't feel as bad about going to bed late because like, I literally roll, roll out of bed and into work. Um, yeah. But you mentioned that a lot of your work is in person. So I imagine you, you don't have that same luxury all the time. I've, well, it's, it's now getting back to a lot in person. Um, like three, two to three days a week, I'm, I'm at customers and I'm driving around. And I like to get to my customer early in the morning and get back home early afternoon so I can get on the computer and start doing uh, stuff like this, like working with my, my tea stuff. Um, so, yeah, but no, I, I appreciate the what what you kind of are doing because i've won in regards to the running thing i was the same way like i was i was a little chunkier kid (laughs) growing up and i hated running and for me it came down to i remember very vividly there was football practice freshman year i at the end you usually do conditioning at the end of your practice and everything and our conditioning at the end was one 100 yard sprint and you had to do it in i want to say under like 20 seconds which sounds i think pretty easy i so i don't know if 20 seconds is like but you had to do it under a certain amount of time and if you didn't you had to do it again and you had to still beat that time so basically you're getting more tired but you got to beat that time right and me and one other guy were the only ones not to do it. And they like, of course, in front of the whole team, they're like, La Palooza. And then this other guy's name, like, back on the line. And I was just like, at that point, I remember going home. And like, it was nice because like, back on the line, we did it. The whole team did it with us and everything. Like, so everybody, so it was kind of a nice bonding experience. <laughs> but I just remember going home that day and I'm like, I'm never going to let that happen again. Like, that was traumatizing and so i i got into running um as well it really didn't take me until college to get into running but i just like knew i wanted to get in better shape at that point and yeah it's it was nice like since then i've definitely gotten a lot faster I, like I, I trained for a marathon I, I did two marathons and I remember training, I was like obsessed with like my time, my mile times. I was like, I got to break like sub, sub seven. I got to get sub six and got to like, just like bolt it. And so that was fun until I hurt myself. But, um, no, that's, that's really cool. I liked the fact, the sentiment that you're like, I hated this. So I dove into it (laughs) and yeah, that's a cool, uh, that's a cool thing. And it's one of those things that like, Again, it, I, this is a, this is from BoJack Horseman. Honestly, um, I don't watch the show. I don't know if you do, but someone. I, yeah, just, I like that show. Do you know the scene that I'm about to refer to when he's like running up the hill, um, and he gets really tired? And he's like he falls down on his back. And he's like, "Ah, oh, I'm sick of this. Running is the worst." And then someone comes over him, also running up the same hill. He's like, "It gets easier," and he's like, "What?" He's like, "Gets every day. It gets a little easier, but you got to do it every day. That's the hard part." Yeah. So I think like running and really any, like, like we said earlier, any endeavor that you really want to pursue, mm-hmm. it will get easier with time because you'll get better at it, but you have to put in that time. Yep. Um, and with running, like a thing that I found that especially is helpful for me is like the days when I'm excited to go for a run or like the days when I'm like, oh, it's Saturday, I'm going to go down to the beach and run by the beach. Mm. Um, or like 
when it's a beautiful day and I'm like pumped, it's easy to go for a run. But like when I've had a full day of work and I'm crazy tired and I still haven't gone to run and I still have like 10 other things to do and I have to run at like 11.45 p.m. like last night, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, I really don't want to run. But then I do it. I get my mile done. And I'm like, that wasn't so bad. And I'm glad I did it. It's like a very like rewarding feeling when you do something that you know you should, but you don't want to. Mm. Yeah. So much, so much truth there. Um, I like that. I think that's a good place to end. <laughs> Unless do you have, do you have more that you want to, do you have anything else you want to talk about? Anything that you want to, uh, yeah. Anything else you want to talk about with the woodworking, jujitsu, running, bobsledding, Israeli bobsledding. <laughs> <laughs> so much to talk about. Um, tea. <laughs> yeah. Teach me something about tea. We didn't talk about tea Ooh. a whole ton and I haven't, I haven't like studied much tea stuff since like high school when I was, when I was like really into that. So teach me something new about tea. Teach you something new about tea. Oh my gosh. On the spot. I'm the one hosting the podcast. <laughs> what the heck, man? Um, hey, you, you asked if I want to talk. About I know, that. right? That's on me. <laughs> That's all on me. Ah, what's, what's there to teach about tea? I've been, I mean, my mind when being put on the spot, I always like to go to green tea. Green tea is my, it's my like, first love and i think will always be my true love when it comes to tea so what do we want to what do you want to learn about tea do you do you know a lot about matcha do you know about like the differences in chinese versus japanese green teas um so i was actually it's funny you mentioned matcha i was just thinking about it uh and i was thinking about asking you to tell me more about it because i've seen people like i think i even saw somewhere a donut like with frosting and then matcha powder on top and i'm like is that good? I don't think I've ever had matcha tea, um, okay. but now people are also like cooking with it and stuff. So yeah, what's I've up been, with matcha? So much is up with matcha, and again, this is a you're you're opening up a can of worms. Um, <laughs> but I I love matcha, and actually, um, I'm gonna be posting a podcast soon with. Well, at the point that this one gets uploaded, uh, check out the one with Danielle uh, from Tea and Me blog. She we talk a lot about matcha, but. Um, yeah, so matcha, for people who don't really know too much about it, basically matcha is green tea leaves taken and the stems are removed and the veins are removed and you just have like the actual like leafy part and it's ground to a fine powder. And so when you mix it with hot water, you are actually ingesting the tea. You're like eating the tea leaf basically in the, in a powder form. Whereas like when you steep tea, you just extract the nutrients and the flavors and the tannins from the tea leaf. So matcha is different in that sense because you're actually ingesting the whole leaf. And when you do that, the antioxidants are more potent and more bioavailable for you. So the, the saying always goes that, one cup of matcha is an equivalent antioxidant wise to 10 cups of green tea, which is pretty awesome. Um, the caffeine content, because you're also ingesting the tea leaf is, um, is higher. So it's similar caffeine wise to a cup of coffee for me. Now the beauty of matcha is there's this compound, it's an amino acid called L-theanine. 
I don't know if you've heard of it, but what this what this amino acid does, it's not like one of the, I think there's like eight primary amino acids that you kind of need for building blocks in your system. This is a non-essential amino acid, but it's predominantly found in green tea and really heavy, heavily found in matcha. And so what it does is because there's that high caffeine in matcha, it allows the matcha to, or allows like the caffeine to, instead of like spiking up in your system and like, and like you get the spike and then you get the crash, it kind of, you kind of get like a, a quick rise of caffeine and focus and energy, but then the L-theanine is actually reacts with uh, some receptors in your brain and will calm you basically it won't allow the caffeine to have that drastic drop effect it'll gradually have the caffeine focus wear off so you have that spike of energy and then now gradually you come down and it keeps you more aware more focused more energized over a longer period of time so this is why i've got like super into it just because i love the way that matcha made me feel in regards to flavor, so there's a lot when it comes to flavors. Um, a shitty matcha tastes really astringent, so really bitter, almost on an edge of acidic, and <clears throat> kind of, as people like to say, tastes like grass clippings. That's like the what people compare it a lot to. Yeah. Um, the a good matcha so if you ever see something that says ceremonial grade um on a matcha there's different types of grades you have like culinary grade ceremonial grade ooh um and i'm blanking on like what the other ones are but if you ever see ceremonial grade that's typically the highest grade that you can find and when you have a good quality ceremonial grade and good quality typically or you always want to buy matcha from japan that's like a pretty big, big thing because there are other places that will uh, export matcha, but the best quality comes from Japan. So that's that's something to always note if you're looking at matcha. But a good quality matcha, um, ceremonial grade, that's from Japan, it tastes super naturally sweet, very, very smooth, still has a little bit of vegetal tones to it, but it's when you and when you whisk it the proper way and have a nice little froth on top it it's a new experience it's just tastes so much better and um and then again to your point of the baking i've actually gotten into baking with with matcha and yeah yeah it's been a lot of fun i over new year's i had a couple we had uh, me and my brother had some people over, and I decided like everyone was kind of a potluck type thing. So there was like five to like eight of us, and so I decided to cook matcha cookies. And oh my gosh, they were so good! And it's such an easy thing to add to. You add the matcha, basically, you find a cookie recipe, you find a cake recipe, a brownie recipe, whatever, and you add like one to three t- teaspoons of matcha, and all of a sudden it just enhances the flavor to a more matcha type flavor. So if you like it, it, it pairs well with like in baking, 
It pairs well with coconut, white chocolate, uh, dark chocolate. I like, um, what else have I tried it with? I made overnight oats um, the other night and sprinkled matcha in it. It was a really nice kind of flare up and then I added like coconut and honey to it. Really, really good. Um, pancakes, you can literally just add it to pancakes. It makes it fun and exciting and different. Uh, waffles, there's so much. And it's, um, yeah, it's definitely a different flavor. Um, and the baking does do, um, kind of changes up the flavor a little bit than when you would get and I mean, it's just because there's so many other uh, ingredients in there. But yeah, like I said, I can talk more about matcha, but I'm going to leave it at that unless you have more questions. <laughs> I'll leave it at that too. You learn something new every day. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. I, always, it, I knew it was a powder and I was, always was like, well, I know with like loose leaf tea, you would strain out the tea or you'd have it in like a, um, a strainer already or something or like one of those little like wire mesh balls. Yep. But uh, I never knew with like matcha how that works or... I didn't even know what the powder was made of. Like, I, I didn't know it was just the tea leaves without the stems and veins. It's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, again, super, super fascinating stuff. Stuff that, that was like the progression for me was like green, bagged green tea. And then I bought bagged green tea that has like matcha powder in it. And then it like blew my mind. I'm like, whoa, what's this little bit of powder? And then <laughs> I dove into that. And then, yeah, I kind of blew up from there. So it's a... Like I said, it's it's good. You want to make sure to like there's proper ways of like whisking it and preparing it because if you don't do it right, if you don't really have like the right tools and equipment, you can get like clumps of matcha in it, which not bad. It's just like yeah. eh, it's never not the most appetizing to have like a clump of matcha at the bottom of your of your tea bowl or teacup. Yeah, yeah. I know a lot of people at U of I went to this place on campus called the Japan House to like learn how to do a traditional um, tea ceremony. Yeah, I would. Cool. Man, I that is one hundred percent a goal on my list is to go to Japan and participate in a real tea ceremony because I've never. That's something I have not dove too into yet, mm -hmm. and I'm excited because I have a few people lined up for the show that are more like far greater tea experts than me and they have done this stuff and i'm excited to learn about this because there's so much culture behind especially matcha like l let alone tea but matcha specifically there's so much culture that i would like to know more about because i'm i drink so much of it i feel like almost disrespecting the culture of it it's like okay I drink a lot of this. I want to know about it, and I want to, I want to really like kind of have a full experience where like I can like honor the people who've like made this a thing for me nowadays. And now, because like now it's just like you find it everywhere. You find it in lattes. You find it in baked goods. You find it. It's like is that disrespectful? <laughs> Are we disrespecting people by uh, by doing that? Because it's good, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's also like just like from my food background, it's always very interesting to learn like the background of a food, especially like something that's like culturally very connected to a specific group uh, yeah. for for many, many years. Like especially if it's way before the advent of uh, technology and like you learn why certain things were made a certain way because like either that's all you had back then or you had to avoid such and such problems. Like all the different preservation uh, methods that we think of for food, like now you, you pickle stuff just because you feel like pickling stuff. But mm -hmm. back in the day, you used to pickle stuff because you had to or else yeah, you, you would have, have to, yeah. 
vegetables uh, in the winter. Yeah. So yeah, it's all that fascinating. Stuff's fascinating. Yeah, I know. It really is. It really is. What else? What else? I don't know, man. Now I, I feel like I need to try some matcha. I, I would recommend it if you're caffeine sensitive. Um, maybe not now, though you still have to go for a run. So <laughs> yeah, it'll fire me up. So I'm, I'm actually curious now that you, since you mentioned the caffeine um, earlier, you said it was like, uh, like one cup of matcha is similar to 10 cups of green tea in caffeine. Yes, content. not caffeine wise. Cause I get oh. that question a lot too. Okay. No, it's, I was going to say, does it make you jittery like coffee? Cause you mentioned like caffeine wise, no, no. it's kind of like coffee. Yeah. So man, this is a whole nother can of worms too with caffeine and tea yeah. people. So what you'll see, the, the, the common story that you'll see with caffeine and tea is white tea and green tea. So basically people equate the oxidation level to um, how much caffeine. So if it's more oxidated or oxidized, I'm sorry, if it's more oxidized, then it'll be higher in caffeine content. And if it's less oxidized, it'll be less caffeine. So that being said, in order of least oxidized to most oxidized, you typically get white, green, oolong, black, and then pu'er type teas. And so that's the story that a lot of people have just accepted and gone about. It's not the truth, though, because you can find green teas like matcha is a green tea. And it has one of the I get the most energy boost out of it, like one of the most energy boosts out of it now. And then you can find black teas like a Darjeeling is a black tea. It's, um, so it's actually a black tea. I believe it's less oxidized. So it kind of does follow that rule and it has less caffeine, but it, it's like the caffeine content of tea has so much to do, not just with oxidation, but also with where it's grown, how it's grown. Like if you shade um, the last like 14, uh, there's like a couple teas out there that the, for the last two weeks of their growing life they shade it. So they literally have like these mesh black tarps that go over the, the tea plants and it only lets a little bit of sunlight in, but for the most part it's shaded. And this actually boosts like chlorophyll levels in the tea, making it sweeter. It also, I think adds a little bit more caffeine to the tea. Um, and typically you get a lot of green teas that way. And so like, there's, there's a lot there. So if like someone's like truly interested in knowing what they're going to be doing, it's like, you got to find out what kind of tea you're really drinking. So it's like, uh, what kind of green tea specifically is it? Cause it might be a green tea that is just on that high level of caffeine. And you think like, all right, this is good to have at like 6 PM at night. Cause it's got like only like 10 milligrams because that's what green tea is always like said, like 10 to 20 milligrams of caffeine. It's like, well, actually you're drinking one that has like 80. And so you might, you might be right. sleep, not sleeping that well. Yeah. Um, but for simplicity, people like to stick around because for the most part, and it's also like brewing techniques. So if you brew a cup of tea, typically longer, the longer you steep it, the more you, the more caffeine you have. 
But again, I, I can get start to get into some some science that I'm actually writing on. This is a, I'll give a little plug for myself. If you go on freshsteeps.com, I'm writing. I decided because this fascinates me to kind of break down different compounds that are typically in tea and dive a little bit deeper into the science. So I've written like articles on the caffeine in tea, um, writing stuff on like EGCG, which is a compound typically in matcha and green tea. Then there's theanine, there's L-theanine, there's uh, tannins, flavonoids, all that sort sort of stuff. <clears throat> that I'm interested in and I think other people would be too. I'm starting to write a blog post trying to do like one a week. It's like a what's in tea series that I'm that I've been doing. So I'll give that little plug for myself instead of just rambling on about it. <laughs> That's awesome. I liked uh, on your on your story the other day, or I think it was earlier today actually, um or maybe both. You had like these tea leaves that like unfurled once you steep them. Yes. That was really cool. Like I've never seen I don't think I've ever seen tea leaves that big. Like once they're uh once they're steeped, I'm used yeah. to kind of like the smaller cut up tea leaves. Yeah. And that's, that's another big thing. I mean, again, man, we're going, we're doing the full, the full tea experience here. I love it. Um, I'm a huge proponent of loose leaf over bagged tea. And that is one of the reasons yeah. because the tea leaf, a, a true tea leaf is you take the, the big long tea leaf that you saw and you basically like roll it up. Like some people, like, I mean, originally it was like literally hand rolled into these tight little balls and little pearls. And when you add it to the water, as it unravels and unfurls, it literally releases its flavor in different f- fashions and different forms. And actually the way that you roll it. So you'll find some that are twisted. You'll find some that are rolled. You'll find some that are like rolled in other ways. Like, the difference in how you do that actually has different flavor, if that makes sense. Like it, like literally unravels in certain ways that releases flavors differently. Oh. Yeah, it's it's kind of fast. It's yeah. fascinating and bizarre to me. So, but yeah, like I like I posted those were actually my roommate did that. He po- or he flattened them all out onto these this nice plate and i'm like ooh, i'm gonna take a picture of that and post that because like he like did it like by each leaf and i was like that's nice usually i don't take the time to do that i just pour it out because i've been drying like all my tea leaves and saving them for an unknown experiment but um yeah yeah i think that's a i like to show people that because like you said i think people think of like tea bags and one either if you op- ever open up a tea bag, it might just be like tiny little shavings of pieces. Right. And one of the hidden secrets of tea tea bags is that those tiny pieces. So after a tea processing company takes and processes their loose leaf tea, the tea bags are filled with basically the leftover stuff from the loose leaf. So it's just the shit yeah. <laughs> from the loose leaf. Go it gets put into these bags and like oh here's green tea and it's like just not that good of tea yeah. it's like the leftover stuff that you don't scraps. like yeah the yeah. scraps and so they just shave it up and like you actually get a little bit more caffeine with stuff that's cut up because there's more surface area to like release the caffeine molecules but yeah <laughs> that's cool man so you mentioned your your roommate is he like on his own tea journey or do you just kind of make tea for the apartment whenever your house or apartment wherever you live. Yeah, we um 
so it's fun. He was he grew up in Nepal for majority of his life. He well, it might be like majority of his life from like age three to sixteen. And so he's got some good tea stories and good tea experience from there. So he's um he is on his own little tea journey and but it's fun because we'll we'll sit and talk about tea for a long time, do our own little I don't know if you can see behind me. Oh, probably not, nope. Um but I got like right behind me there's some I like you actually sent me not not really no, you sent me a different picture of a of a tea box. Um but there are these like Gung Fu tea sets. Like if you if you just like look up Gung Fu G O N G F U um, tea, and like there's these like trays, and so we have that, and so we'll we'll sometimes enjoy some tea and just talk about it. And I can show him like I have cabinets just filled with un- unnecessary amounts of tea at my place. So it's there's such thing as an unnecessary amount of tea for someone whose life is tea. <laughs> right i guess so i guess so i can't i'm not complaining like whatsoever it's a right. it's a beautiful thing and something i uh it's it's fun because like when i wake up in the morning sometimes i'm just craving a tea and i love it because i can get go downstairs and i know it's there and i'm like mm. <laughs> this is this is nice yeah yeah so what's next on your tea journey then what's next on my tea matcha journey? i don't really know that- i've i guess matcha yeah I, I, <laughs> um I know you had um, I forget the name Jack. I think the Jack Joseph Comcom yeah, kombucha guy. Com- I haven't had Com-com. I haven't had Comcom, but I've had. I'm a big fan of kombucha, so I got to try Comcom next. Uh, yeah, you'll be you back in it. Illinois, dude. He um, check out his website drinkcomcom.com and other people like you. You should you know Jack. He's he went to school with us. Do you, do you know him? Um, I don't think we ever like ran into each other, but like again, one of those people who passing by in the halls of Stevenson for sure. Yeah. Oh no, you, he's younger than you. He's two years. He's a uh, Corey's age. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, man, kombucha. So just do, first of all, check out, I think it's episode eight. I think episode eight is with Jack Joseph from drink com com or from community kombucha drink com com is the website and Instagram. But um, if you want to learn a lot about kombucha and what it is, I'd recommend checking out that episode, but high level, it's basically a fermented tea and sugar with a, uh, what's called a SCOBY, which is just a symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. So it eats up all the caffeine and the sugar in the tea and it makes kombucha. And so he's, he's really, he started a company and it's really good. Like People who don't like kombucha have tried it and I've given it to them and they're like, oh, this is different. Like, this is good. And I'm like, yeah, it's, he does it well. He has a really awesome process. And, um, and if you're going back to Illinois, um, let me, or check him out, reach out via, um, Instagram or something I can, I can hook you guys up to cause he's a, he's a cool, he's also just such a cool dude. Like so, so down to earth and really just out there trying to trying to do some awesome things so definitely check out his stuff sweet yeah have you ever made kombucha i have he gave me a scoby <laughs> it's actually it's kind of gross um the he gave me a scoby like a beautiful scoby to take back to minneapolis and i did and for a while i was making kombucha and 
um it was good like i was i was making like decent stuff i was experimenting a lot and so there were some that i made that were really gross like flavored but um whatever so i was like just mixing it up and then i went to start a new batch and i looked on the on the scoby and i was like that's moving the scoby is moving (laughs) it's like Ooh, what is that? And I like look closer and there's like, it literally looked like these tiny little worms or maggots. And I was like, no. oh no, I like almost threw up. I'm like, this is the grossest thing I've ever oh, seen. No. And so I filmed it and I sent it to Jack. I'm like, Jack, what did I do? What is this? What did you give me? I'm like, I've already drank a bunch of this stuff. Like, am I going to, do I have like a tapeworm now or something? And he's like, dude, I've never seen that. I'm like, so after digging into a little it into it a little, I found out that there were these there's these things called vinegar eels. And that's what they call them. Super gross name. Like it doesn't help it. Um and they when a SCOBY gets contaminated, it can grow these vinegar eels. And usually they usually they're in I was going to use the word invited, but I don't think that's the right word. Usually they're incorporated from like an outside outside contamination. And I'm like, I've done such a good job at making sure I'm cleaning out everything. I'm like, this is, and like, they were like, if you, you can actually theoretically still use the scoby and drink it yeah. and you'll be fine. And I'm like, hell no, no, <laughs> I'm not going to do it. That's disgusting. Like it looks absolutely horrendous. Um, but the good thing was, and I still do, so the beauty of a SCOBY is when you have a healthy one and you keep reusing it and you can just keep reusing it, it actually grows more SCOBY. Like it just, it's a, it's a living thing. So it just constantly grows and you can actually peel back layers and keep them and grow more kombucha and like expand yourself. So I was able to extract a piece of the SCOBY before this happened so i do have a healthy one <laughs> that's still sitting on my counter it doesn't have any gross eels or anything swimming around on it but yeah i have, I have not really touched i haven't really messed with it in a long time but yeah dude it's it's a fun process just gross <laughs> when that happened i think i made kombucha like twice and okay like i've done both the first and second fermentation um and like the second one uh, one of the times i tried to mix in like straight up just fruits that yes. I blended up into like liquid to, to make it taste yep, good. Like a pure, but, yeah. Yeah, but it just, it didn't taste good at all. It just tasted like spoiled fruit, to be honest. Oh, um, interesting. But the, the first fermentation kombucha is interesting. I don't know if you've ever tried it after just one fermentation, but it, like, it's not that fizzy. It's like maybe a little bit of fizz, mm-hmm. uh, but it's like tangy and like, it's an interesting feeling, yeah. um, but it doesn't have that like fruity flavor. So if that's something that you're looking for. Yeah. But yeah, the scoby thing is super cool. Yeah, the scoby thing is is fascinating, and that's and yeah, I agree that first fermentation, it's drinkable. It's it's like it's fine, and, but I'm like, eh, I like a little bit of fizz in mine. And for me, that didn't happen. I did add a, I pureed some blueberries and some ginger, Ooh. and that was nice. really that was my, that was the best one I made. All the other ones, like I said, were like five out of tens. And then there was one that I like added. Do you know what moringa is? Yeah. Yeah, so I added moringa, and I think it was like moringa, Tulsi, um, so or holy basil and honey. I don't know. I thought that might be good, and I open it up, and it just like made my entire apartment smell like a fart. 
And I'm like, and I had like my girlfriend and like one of my buddies was over and they're like, did you just like rip ass? I'm like, no, <laughs> I opened up this kombucha that I made. Like, you guys want to try it? They're like, no, <laughs> no, we don't actually. Yeah. And I Not after it, what we like, just smelled. Yeah. I'm like, I tried it and I'm like, don't worry. It tastes like how it smells. <laughs> it was so bad. So if anyone wants to steal that um, that recipe, like I said, it was some moringa powder, Tulsi, holy basil, and honey. Maybe you can perfect it. <laughs> I yeah. could not. Make it taste better than Vince's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, man. What else? I don't know. What else do you have going on? Oh, man. Um, is there like a, a, a step in the T direction or like a specific... Uh, not to like turn the tables and interview you, but I was going to say, this um, is last, uh, last 30 minutes of, I'm grilling you. It's been the Aitan show, Aitan show. Um, are there like things that you, um, like haven't really explored that much in tea that you'd like to explore more? hundred percent. 100% man. It's, um, there's, there's so much in the tea. Again, like, like I mentioned earlier with the distance breeds naivety. And then once you get the, the proximity breeds, just like, on our unending possibilities. So I'm now discovering just so much how I, how much I don't know about tea. And so there's um I mentioned her before T and me uh, Danielle from T and me blog. Uh she's doing this really cool thing where every month of 2021 she is diving deep into one specific type of tea. So she did chai in the month of February, in March she's doing matcha march. So diving super deep and like learning about the history, the ceremonies, the types, and just really getting into that. That's kind of inspired me. I've really, because I don't know much about like the names and like the specific, especially like with black tea. I've been super into green tea my whole life and well, majority of my life. And I feel like I kind of have a good, like a base level understanding of green tea, but like oolong, black, I'm really getting into pu'er tea and white tea. I like those I just don't know that well. And I'd like to know like when it comes to like the regions where tea's grown, there's so much there that I don't know. Um and just yeah, man, like there's there's so much. It, and that's the beauty of it is I know like I'm going to die not knowing everything still. And it's that's the fun part of it though. So I have a lot of learning to do and that's part of why I wanted to do this podcast is to bring people on. I mean, selfishly, I that's I love learning and just talking with people. So I if, I, if there's someone I can talk to, not even tea related, just like about anything and learn from them, hell yeah, I'm in. And th- these are this is how I learn the best is through conversation. So I'm excited for conversations with like true tea experts who have been dedicated for 10, 15, 20 multi, like their whole life to tea. Yeah. And yeah, again, it's going to be like an hour, two hours, three hours of a conversation. And I'm hoping to extract a little bit, little tidbit and then have them on six months from now, extract a little bit more and just keep, keep building and doing my own research and stuff like that. So yeah, there's, there's a lot and I'm, I'm got some projects that, I'm excited for with fresh steeps and we'll see Like you said, like kind of like what you're doing with your woodworking. We'll see what happens. Um, when I have my free time, I, uh, I like to pursue 
pursue this tea stuff, but got to focus and still trying to have fun and make light of, of the world that we're living in and, and do everything. Totally. Any plans to like open a, a tea cafe or like make the, the podcast in person one day like post COVID? I would love, I, I want to do in-person podcasting for sure. And maybe I'll have to, um, yeah, maybe I'll have to show people my garage and my house because there's, there's definitely, yeah, maybe this will just be a teaser for, for the future to come, but it'll, my garage has a lot of potential. Basically the homeowners before this, before I took over this place, they converted the one car garage into a man cave and there's, it's just a really cool space now. And so I don't have a garage, but it's a really cool space and I have ideas and me and my roommate actually have been talking a lot and he's got, he's a very creative um, guy and likes building and fixing things and doing stuff. So he's had some good ideas and I'm like, yeah, I'm excited because I'm hoping we're going to, we're going to get some stuff, but I'll take some, some pictures and I can send them to you see, so that you have them. And I don't know if, if they'll be public just yet, but yeah, there, there's definitely plans of making this podcast in person. I mean, what's nice about this too is like you're in Florida right now and we're having this conversation. So I like this remote podcasting because it just gives me an opportunity to reach so many more people. Yeah. But at the end of the day, there, I know in here in Minneapolis, there's a lot of herb and tea specialists and it's a lot of cool people. So it'd be nice to to talk with them too. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, man. Anything else? I'm, I'm uh, afraid to ask that question at this no, point because you, you, you got questions. <laughs> I was going to say, you keep asking anything else. Like, you keep wanting me to open a can of worms. Hey, There's, man, I'm, I'm here. <laughs> I'm here to talk. I'm here to, to do this. There's a, there's a concept that my dad told me about once when he moved from the former Soviet Union yeah. um, to Israel. He, like, he was already above the age where you have to serve in the military, but like, he had to go do reservist training because after you're done serving in the military in Israel, uh, you're in the reserves for a number of years because if like, stuff hits the fan uh, and they have to go to war, a lot of times like, they'll recruit the reservists. Like, my uncle was, was called up and like, had to leave his job to go serve uh, in the Gaza Strip as a medic. Mm. Uh, in the military, just like in the middle of his career. But there's this concept uh, in the Israeli military, I guess, called a, a kitback question. Kitback is Hebrew for, for backpack. Um, and it's in reference to like when your commander tells your um, your team to like go out for a hike and one guy has to be the guy who's like, is it with our with our backpack or without the backpack? And like once you ask that, of course, he's going to be like with the backpack. With the and backpack, everyone's like, yeah. oh, that guy. <laughs> That's like, like creating more work for yourself by asking a question. Exactly. That's like the the kid who always asks the question, like, "Wait, did we have homework due tomorrow?" And it's like, "Yo, shut up." <laughs> like, we have a quiz tomorrow, right, bro? <laughs> yeah, like, come on. Maybe the teacher forgot. He's gonna get beat up after class. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, dude, we were we were so close as everyone's walking out, so close. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, then you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna call it. I'm gonna call it right here. I'm getting I'm getting hungry anyway. It's almost time for dinner where I'm at. So. Um, give your uh, give yourself a shout out. Where give yourself a plug? Where can people find you on social media and with everything that you're doing? Yeah, so um, my woodworking doesn't have a website yet. Eventually, I'd like to have a, a website and maybe an Etsy shop. 
Um, but for now, you can find uh, the woodworking stuff that I'm doing at uh, ET Woodworks, W-O-O-D-W-R-X, um, or just my personal um, Instagram, which is uh, everything else I do outside of woodworking, um, which is just my first and last name, which I won't even spell out because... No it'll be, no yeah, it'll be on the web or on the episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome, dude. Um, I think you're going to have to rub it in. Corey was, was adamant that he was happy to be, I think the longest, I think, um, we're going to have, we're going to have his beat. Oh, <laughs> so you shouldn't have told me that. I'm going to text him right after this and tell him. <laughs> yeah, you, you should. Cause, uh, we'll, we'll make sure rub it in Corey's face, yep. <laughs> but you have to have him back on the podcast one day. I was going to say, oh, shucks. That was a, that was a fun conversation anyway. Yeah. But dude, no, this was, this was good. Um, definitely. I, I want to, I want to, I, I feel like I tell this like with every, every guest I have, like, but I do, I want to see where you, where you're at with your jujitsu career, with uh, the woodworking and everything. Super excited to see all that stuff and have to have you back on in, in whatever amount of time just to see, have you back. I mean, Shit, we could talk for a while, but like I said, I'm getting hungry. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But dude, Hopefully thank you so much. We, by the next time we speak, I'll make you something uh, cool and tea-related out of wood. Ooh. Figure out what that'll be. I like that. I like that. Well, that sounds good, dude. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, Thanks people go check me. him out. And yeah, appreciate it, dude. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you to Aton for that fun conversation. Check out his work on Instagram at E.T. Woodworks. That's E-T-W-O-O-D-W-R-X. Thank you to Tiesta Tea for sponsoring today's episode. Check out their exciting tea flavors at tiestatea.com. And remember to use code TMIGOS20 at checkout for 20% off your first order. If you've been enjoying the show, leave a review and subscribe. For more tea info and to stay up to date, follow Fresh Steeps on Instagram or go to freshsteeps.com. And to end today's show, the Urban Dictionary Tea Word of the Day. And today's word is tea leaf. Tea leaf. Rhyming slang for a thief. Where's my pencil gone? You've got it, you tea leaf. Number two. Tea leaf. Thief from Cockney rhyming slang. Oi, get back here, you kin tea leaf. Number three. Tea leaf. Rhyming slang for a thief. That that tea leaf half-inched me wallet. Sorry for that, that accent there. Tea leaf. Classic Cockney Australian rhyming slang for thief. Direct antonym would be honest, would be an honest fellow. Direct antonym, that's like pulling out English from third grade or wherever you learn that. Some tea leaf nicked me cash. <laughs> that was like a little Irish or something there. Uh, number five, tea leaf, a thief. Hey, that bastard just tea leafed my wallet. And there you have it, folks. Tea leaf and the Team Egos podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate you tuning in. Uh, Remember, check out Fresh Steeps and have a beautiful day. Peace.